remember everybody else. I remember Micah. I remember Bill Pullman returning. And yeah. Even Brent Spiner's ass. Um, <laughs> but I can't remember Liam Hensworth over Brent Spiner's ass. So that I'd, says something. I'd, this film was convinced that it was going to have another film. Yeah, that is one of the most limp. I mean, it is the movie equivalent of a guy accidentally sticking his dick in an ass when he thought he was going up the vagina because it is so off track. Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, I'm not so sure how I feel about the uh, the performance of the lead lead character uh, who who is played pretty well for the most part by Andrew Garfield. Yeah. He's uh he's an interesting character for sure, an interesting portrayal. Felt a little Forrest Gumpy, but not as relatable. And yeah, <laughs> that's the perfect way to describe it. <laughs> the worst ending that I've seen this past year was Sully because what the fuck was that? Oh man. That whole movie was like what the fuck was that? But then the Well, ending, I wish it would happen in July. <laughs> that bullshit right there. That's exactly why that was the worst ending for me. I was just like Oh man. Why? And, and it just I forgot fades, about that. It just fades to exactly you yeah. forgot about it. It's like I'm just glad you brought this fades up. to black. The bird uh, eating away at uh, the mother's nipple is really something. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I have to admit, my sexuality Ooh. was born that day. Yeah. I, I don't want to say I'm a nervous wreck, but... <laughs> it's Edward Norton, too! That's, uh, this fucking guy! That's really, that's really fucking... Damn it! That's fucking me up right I, 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 I was in one Woody Allen movie, and now I'm casted in this shit. I don't get it. I, I, I have a reformed mental state. I mean, I used to think that the, the, the black population shouldn't exist, but then, then I was raped in prison, and I, I, now I, I have completely different thoughts. I, my brother, save him. Yeah, he still, <laughs> still got that fucking huge swastika tattoo. Oh that God, sucks. Stop. Remember the time I curb stomped somebody? <laughs> Why is this flashback in black and white? Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there again, everybody, and welcome back in to episode 101 of Film Tank. Uh, this is the second part of our two-part review of the year 2016. And uh, if you did not listen to part one, you missed out. But also, uh, I am Alex Diekman, along with my usual co-host, Nick Cheney and Tissan Egan. dun 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 Yeah. So last year, we, uh, we did a similar second part of uh, the 2015 uh, Best of episode where we went through 12 different categories and gave our feelings on whatever the category was and uh this year we're doing something similar only with 15 yeah categories. so a little bit of an expansion more bang for your buck well yeah but uh some that are pretty obvious and some that are you know a little more fun and uh yeah so let's start off uh with nick talking about who he felt was the best actor this year in cinema 
Alex, thanks for passing it on to me. Well, I'm here in Illinois, and... Uh, you sound like a sports announcer. Hey, do I? Hey, was there a sporting event this past weekend? Anyway, it was the Super Bowl for anybody who's listening, and yet this is too far out from oh, the actual yeah. calendar date. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually kind of forgot that that was last weekend. We all did. <laughs> It was Aww. Patriots, so who cares? Aww. Anyway. See, you're somebody who didn't watch the game because it was a really fantastic oh, I did watch the game. Yeah. But and, I still uh, like to say things that I hear other people say. <laughs> it is funny, though, that and very indicative of... I'm very re- good at pretending. Well, no, uh, very indicative of, of real society that even though it was the biggest comeback in Super Bowl history... Uh, the first overtime game in Super Bowl history, by far the most I heard anyone talking about it was about Lady Gaga's halftime show. I was going to say the most I heard talked about was the victory for the alt right party. Oh yeah, it's Man, true. Fuck that. I know. Yeah. I'm not even. I'm not even talking now. Re- really quick, because this is really getting off on a tangent. But yeah. did you guys watch the halftime show? That Lady I did Gaga watch did? the halftime show. Yes. And what what were your thoughts? I thought it was okay. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely understand anybody who thought it was great whenever um didn't really bowl me over but uh i thought it was extremely inoffensive and and not in that actual typical use of the word i just mean it didn't really stand out but um and i i you know a lot of people i do think there's credence to the idea that i personally would have wished it was slightly more political um i'm just saying it's a huge fucking platform and uh I would have appreciated uh, something a little more. Th- and I know a lot of people argued, no, it was political because she wasn't making a political statement. And I'm like, okay, sure. I mean, yeah, would, you, I... would you have preferred if the drones actually like felt like flew off in order to like commit a mission or something? Well, there wasn't really much to do with that because that was pre-recorded. So. Right, and yeah, I was gonna say, and you know, the whole opening it with the medley of American patriotism, you know. I, Maybe okay. First of all, I know nothing about sports, so this doesn't really matter what I have to say. But I'll say it anyway. But because it's the NFL, that's why I kind of want it to be slightly political. Like this is already one of the worst corporations in America, in, yeah. in my opinion. As, it's a nonprofit, by the way. Yo, wonderful. <laughs> um, but in in all of the evilness that it perpetuates and looks away from, so I, I definitely think there could have been something more than there was. But yeah, I find it interesting that it is both the NFL. And two, this uh, year's Super Bowl was on Fox. Yeah. 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 So, anyways, getting off that, <laughs> getting back to 2016. Nick, your best actor best for actor. this year, yes. I have a tie. Okay. Uh, this, for me, was the year of supporting actors. So, my tie is between Mashala Ali from Moonlight as the gangster Juan, uh, who gives. My probably my favorite overall performance of the year. Uh, he's just fantastic. Obviously, I talked about Moonlight on our episode. We've talked about Moonlight on our other episode, um, and so I won't say much. But I will say, like he is only in uh, Chiron's life in the first thirty minutes of this movie, and he feels like he's in every scene. The weight of his words, um, the the cadence of his actions, uh, they just, in my opinion, blew me away. Um, and he somehow owned uh, that, I wouldn't say tiny role, but certainly uh, minimal role. And that's how you do a supporting... True supporting role. Yeah. yeah. And especially because he has to act opposite of a child, which isn't always the easiest thing to do. Um, and not only does he do that, but he does it in such an endearing way. 
uh, that like you know like every time I see him on screen, I, I like I'm like the kid in Persona, putting my hand on the screen, going, "Will you be my daddy?" Like mm-hmm. he's just <laughs> he's just such a commanding he's, presence. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for all you Bergman aficionados out there, oh, um, so yeah, I just I absolutely loved Marshala Ali in Moonlight. He was tied with <laughs> Tom Bennett. In love and okay, friendship. Yeah. I mean, the flip side of that coin, someone who completely owns <laughs> all of their scenes in a comedic fashion. Uh, like, love and friendship itself, it certainly belongs to other people than Tom Bennett. But if there was no Tom Bennett, it would be a slightly lesser movie, and we would all be a slightly worse off country not having it, uh, or world not having it. And I thought, uh, I, I saw that you are located in Churchill, but I saw no church and no hill. So, couldn't find it. I need to see this guy. Three days. Oh, man. You oh, should. Man. We'll, that, we'll watch that, it. That for, like, because obviously you see him later and he delivers so many great lines throughout. But that first like three minute scene when you first get slapped in the face yeah. with his character caught me so off guard the yep. first time we saw it. Like this. So between great. you two talking about it and like describing scenes, I already think that this is some of the funniest shit I've heard like this past year and I oh. can't wait to actually fucking and see it. And we're like doing horrible impressions. Yeah. Like I'm just saying, like, well, you know, like, what are these little green balls? Like, what is this idiot? It's so great, but, um, and, and, and it, it is something like, I know what happened. Like, I was there. Like, there was an extra line in that final scene. Oh, yeah. And he says something about, uh, the timeline of the, the pregnancy. The timeline of the pregnancy, and if for some reason it's excluded from the final cut of the too film. Bad. And it was hilarious. No, it's like a 10 second thing, so I don't I know, know why. But yeah. yeah, but he every scene he's in, he just completely abolishes. Um, he even, in my opinion, elevates the other actors when they're sharing the screen with him. I mean, his entrance is preceded by Frederica, who I don't think is all that great in the movie. I mean, she doesn't stand out, but she's also not supposed to because yeah. she's been like whipped by her, uh, emotionally whipped <laughs> by, by her mother to like not really Lady Susan stand out. <laughs> well, it probably wouldn't be that out of character. <laughs> but like even his entrance is preceded by uh, her running through the halls of this very nice English uh, castle or whatever saying like he's, you know, and, and, and his entrance completely lives up to that ridiculous reaction. So yeah, Tom Bennett uh, is just easily the funniest character I've, I saw last year. Absolutely. So Tom Bennett, Marshall Ali, two of the finest supporting actors, if not the two great choices. last year. Good stuff. Tucson. Yeah, it's uh, for for best actor. It's a supreme pleasure, especially because um, I, I feel like in in the case of at least Nick and I, we come from very different temperaments and pretty much like palettes when it comes to what, what we look for yeah. for in films. That it's so gratifying to just coincidentally like be within consensus. Buddy. Be within consensus because my favorite actor was Marshala Ali from. <laughs> Moonlight, Moonlight. Because, because I just thought that he, he did. He dominated every single scene that he was in, and it was just he's 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 just this this wonderful mentor figure that has so much empathy in him, and that you wouldn't even expect from that sort of character archetype, and it just totally bucks the trend of like what we're supposed to like. It bucks the trend of what we're supposed to see upon first appearances, and it's just. And, and and it's not that he's – it's so complicated. It's like I, I, I can't say that he's an entirely good person, but like he's more of like a a product of the 
of the conditions for which he was brought up in, you know, like being a drug dealer yeah. and 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 c- controlling the corner that he does, and it's just it's it's there's there's so much dimensions to that character that you, you don't even have time to like delve into all of them, but they're all implicitly there. One thing that's great about his character and his performance is that one thing that I think went past this viewer myself the first time I watched it, even though it's so obvious. Um, but I think it, it went past me for the same reason why it would go past Chiron when he's a kid because he's not always thinking about others, mm-hmm. is that he has lived Chiron's experience, not necessarily the same exact situation. You know, I'm not saying he's uh, homosexual or mm-hmm. anything like that, but he has been at that exact same crossroads. So he's trying to speak from wisdom, but he's also speaking from a place where he knows that no matter what he says, Chiron's going to go on this journey anyway. Even mm-hmm. if he c- could prevent it, he can't. And and I love that's why in hindsight all those talks with him are even more potent than they are the first time, which the first time I watched I was practically in tears for some of like, the dinner table conversation and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but it's just that world weariness of like, unfortunately, no matter what I say isn't going to actually help you in any, but I'm still going to say it. And when you get to be my age... Yeah you'll be at the same kind of peace, hopefully, mm. that I am now and whatnot. So at so. least like set that person on the path to be able to elucidate that sort of confusion yeah. for themselves. One of the most – one more thing. Mm-hmm. But one of the most, I think, evocative lines in all any movie I saw last year, especially for being a white person mm-hmm. watching a very – uh, African American, you know, movie. Is that there are black people everywhere? Yes. Yeah. Like, like I, I'm like, it's one of those things where I'm like, holy shit! Like, as a white person, yeah. I've never had to think in those terms. Yeah. And yet, I can like, be... after seeing that movie, yeah. I felt like I was let in on a dirty secret. Yeah. Of that's one of the talks mm-hmm. <laughs> that you're gonna have to have yeah. if you're in that situation, and it just kind of, and that's the the power of you know, film and how it can shape somebody's, yeah. you know, worldview. But I just was like, like it, only because it was so frank and, of course, the way it was delivered. Something that you otherwise take for granted. Yeah. Man, that's, yeah, yeah it's really a powerful scene. Don't yeah. worry, Nick, there are white people everywhere. Well, and that's what I don't understand. Is why does he <laughs> only... Yeah, that's what I don't understand. <laughs> it's just, you know, when when he says there are black people everywhere, it's like... Okay, we get that, but why do we need to say it? I mean, it's... God. God. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lord. So, okay. my pick... Yeah. My pick for Best Actor of the Year uh, actually came from a film that I didn't think was all that overly great, but I thought this was an absolutely fantastic performance, and that was Andrew Garfield in Silence. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I thought he put on an absolutely wonderful performance and uh, is one of the sole things from that film that uh, I remember pretty much everything about. Uh, the The film overall left me uh, not necessarily dissatisfied, but just left me not Spiritual. connecting. Yeah, spirit, spiritually bankrupt, for sure. Left me just not connecting with so many parts of it, but he put on such a wonderful performance throughout, whether it be from someone who's so, so um, devout to his faith. And yet at the same time, so devout to his followers where uh, they do mix together, but at the same time he reaches this weird sort of, tornado of not knowing 
which way, which direction he's supposed to follow, and the physical performance that Andrew Garfield puts on too is is very well put together. His character it, it sometimes almost has like a Toshihira Mafune crazy outbreak. Uh, he's also very reserved at points. He, he's very emotional and. Uh, he just plays a wonderful character, and it's a just wonderful performance by Andrew Garfield from an actor who I really honestly have never really given much to because I feel like yeah. he hasn't given that many great performances I mean, or bes- had that make many great roles. Right. Besides Spider-Man, like what greatness has he achieved? <laughs> well, he just hasn't uh, – other, <laughs> other than – That's a hell of a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> other than social, other than social network, I don't recall a film I remember seeing him and thinking he put on a good performance. I, no, I, I could definitely see that, and I'm very glad you chose that because yeah. even though it wasn't necessarily in the running for me, uh, I really enjoyed that performance, and I do think that definitely saves the film in a lot of ways. I mean, as far as from being what it could have been yeah. without him, so yeah, no, and I think he uh, he definitely brought it home for for this film for me at least. So. Absolutely fantastic, Andrew Garfield in silence. I have a I have a suspicion of what both of your best actresses are going to be. I think they're going to be the same thing. Uh, maybe not. No? no. You want to say it no. at the same time? No, you can do yours first, but I'll say that was my number three. I have a tie for best actress, and what you're thinking of is actually number three. Okay. Well, then you should go first. Okay. And, uh, and go, go first. Then okay. I guess Tucson will bring home. So I will just say, <laughs> foreshadowing, the person who... Almost got into a three-way tie with the two people I'll name is Tucson's uh, best actress. But at the end of the day, I looked for performances that, like, jumped off the screen and, like, completely grabbed me. Um, So it is another tie uh, between Kate Beckinsale and Love and Friendship. I think she completely dominates that movie, I think, even though I certainly give more, like, actual out loud laughing attacks to Tom Bennett, I think the movie works because of her most definitely um, and her effortlessly uh, charming and yet sinister uh, plotting and Machiavellian mind. And it's just a, it's just something to, to behold, I think. And I think she's fantastic. And I just love the fact that it was a reemergence, like I mentioned on our episode, of her career. Because I think more people should realize that she's good if you put her in good things. She was also tied with a kind of an oddball choice, but with uh, Susan Sarandon in The Meddler. Um, I think that's a criminally underseen movie from last year. And it works because of Susan Sarandon, like she is the meddler, literally, but she plays a mother who is meddling in her daughter's life, and she somehow, like, I don't get it, but it is such a wonderful performance that she somehow toes the line between being infuriating and endearing like she is everybody's mother someone who is way too involved to the point of suffocation by by a proxy even to the audience and yet at the end of the day has her heart in the right place and is completely disarming and affecting at all turns and um that movie wouldn't be anything without susan sarandon and it's something i think everybody should watch because i think uh she's just fantastic in it so yeah though that was my tie so the person who almost uh got into that tie will be who tucson will talk about all right probably probably 
All right. So my best actress was Janelle Monae. No, it wasn't. <laughs> I love Janelle Monae, and she is a wonderful actress, but she was not my favorite actress of this year. It was Isabelle Huppert yep. from Elle because she fucking dominates that film. Without her, that film would not be what it is. She is the center of gravity for it, and she just, like, commands the screen. Holy fucking shit, she scares the shit out of me. Even even the uh, even the opening scene where you just get the basically audio from the rape scene, hearing some of her yeah. sounds that she's making are, are just... That's part of the performance, and she just knocks that shit out of the park. I remember um, the night when we went to go see that in silence and going to work the next morning and talking to my co-workers like hey so what did you see did you see silence like yeah it was okay it's like where are the films you see oh man i saw this really great film called l and i was like oh man what's it about i can't really tell you it's like it's like uh is this one of those things that i can't look up on the work computer no nope, don't look it up on the work computer see somehow <laughs> I, I have the opposite problem because i work at a library with mostly middle-aged women and when they always ask me, because they always do, like what I went and saw over the weekend, and somehow, for some reason, I didn't keep my mouth shut. So everybody who asked me, I was like, oh, I saw L. Oh, what was that about? Oh, it's about a woman who uh, gets raped, and then she's kind of uh, being told how to react to that, and uh, maybe isn't reacting <laughs> accordingly to society's standards. That's so and then they're like, blasé and, and oh. so... And uh, but I feel like that's true to the spirit of L is being yeah. blasé <laughs> yeah. about such a topic. So oh anyway. my lord! Yeah. yeah. So I have to stop uh, <laughs> recounting re- uh, plots to uh, to my coworkers when they don't really warrant it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just go see it. Yeah, just go see it. Anyway, as Nick just gives the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> and then. And then she told her that she knew about the raping the whole time. Then she's swatting away the bubbles. <laughs> Getting very detailed. Yeah. The red time. She picks up the binoculars, and then with her other hand, she starts making gravy. So my two, uh, my two female leads that are, are tied for Best Actress... Uh, one I talked about quite a bit on our top six first part of this episode, which was Rebecca Hall and Christine, yeah. who puts on a just fabulous performance. And uh, I mean, whatever. It, it Accolades are accolades, but I, I'm just disappointed that more people didn't get a chance to see her performance or at least even have a, a, have a feeling on what she's doing in this film. Uh, and the other person uh, I picked is someone who's an obvious choice for being someone's favorite as a best actress, but Natalie Portman in Jackie, yeah. uh, I feel like even though it is playing same kind of thing, a biographical character in this dramatization, uh, a pretty easy person to enjoy or think that their performance is good because it's doing something that people would see and have a feeling on. But Natalie Portman is one of those actresses that I feel like Almost every time I see her in a film, uh, I have a, a feeling on it, whether it be good or bad. And usually I feel like she's, she's usually quite good. And uh, and here I think she's she's doing a great job playing Jackie Kennedy. I will say I loved her performance as Jackie so much so that that was like the first time in years that that kind of movie genre was touted with such a performance before I saw it. That it actually lived up to its hype. Like, yeah. she is that good. Most of the time, I don't think, like, you know, like the imitation game or, like, those 
whatever small c that you just put a standard stockpile character or whatever. But mm-hmm. this is the first time where, no, she actually does completely own that role, which is crazy because it's a real person. Yeah. No, and I, I thought she was absolutely fantastic. And uh, I'm interested because Isabel Huppert has gotten a lot of buzz now leading up to the Oscars. And I'm not necessarily rooting for her to win because I do kind of want Natalie Portman to win for her role. But I think it will be something if we get another foreign actress winning an award for a completely foreign film because we got it. Uh, many years ago for Levian Rose for Marion Cotillard yeah. and her career for the most part took off after that and yeah. not necessarily that Isabel Huppert's would or anything like that but well, she's already had quite a career I, but yeah. yeah but but in terms of yeah. more American mainstream yeah and also too uh, even with her just being nominated uh, I have a somewhat sneaking suspicion that this may at some point lead to Paul Verhoeven involving uh, mainstream cinema perhaps a little more because this is for real a complete reintroduction for many people to him as a person so for sure um yeah i'm i'm interested to see how that all turns out uh at the academy awards in a couple weeks yeah so we talked about the good let's talk about the bad because there were some shit-ass performances by performers this year and let's talk about the worst performance by either an actor or an actress. This was really easy for me. <laughs> um, in fact, it might be on somebody's list. I mean, it might not. I don't know. But it's not a obscure choice. It's hands down Jared Leto as the Joker. I thought that was the... And yes, I'm certainly taking in account things that were like not on screen in the sense that... But he did that to himself <laughs> by building up the hype, so to speak, around his role with such vitriol and ridiculously inappropriate behavior in a human uh, transaction. And this is a guy who is at pretty much the the peak of his popularity coming off of an Oscar win and playing one of the most iconic film characters of all time. And he got himself cut out of the film for the most part. Yes. And ultimately, the fact that that's what precedes the most boring take on this character we've ever seen um, is insane to me uh, because I don't think Jared Leto is like the worst actor ever or anything like that. I certainly think he can be okay. I don't really care for him in general, but whatever. Uh, but like, holy shit, this is the epitome of, I don't know what happened here. Um, like I, I, I would say that, that this was like, like a Johnny Depp type situation where he took a, paycheck but he seems to revel way too much in the actual you know getting into the character of the joker but what's insane to me is that i guess jared leader was the joker all along and not the other way around because it's just he i don't know it's just one of the most bizarre um things i've ever seen on cinema missteps oh yeah for 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 something especially because the only things that are interesting about the joker in this adaptation are things that are not from Jared Leto. I, I'm just and these aren't interesting things to me. But I mean, I remember for all the things that are not interesting, that there is like a couple of baubles that 
however uninteresting they are, they are the most interesting right. of those elements. But then they have nothing to do with Jared Leto. Like, the only thing I really remember about the Joker in this movie is the one time he's surrounded by knives for some, no reason. Um, and, and there's two, like, baby Yeah, things. little things like that, which have nothing to do with him. Uh, and are only there to, I think, accentuate the negative performance. <laughs> to, to be totally honest with you, I feel like that knife scene was there to put something in the trailer. Yeah, probably. So, um, yeah, I can't believe he took a character that I wouldn't say it's easy to play the Joker, but I think that there's an easy way not to fail <laughs> at playing the Joker, and somehow he did that anyway. Pretty much everybody who's preceded him has succeeded at making Absolutely. that character into something if you don't pretty, pretty um, I don't want to say well-remembered, but pretty much everybody... Going all the way down the list has played somebody who's just stayed with society and stayed with comic book culture for a long time. Oh, the agreed. DC movie verse found a way to fuck up the Joker, and I will yeah. never forgive them for that. Also, I don't know what the fuck is going on, but somehow we're just mind melding and, and just being totally 100% in sync. Continue. Because, like, the worst performance for me for this year is extraordinary for the fact that it's not even confined to a two-and-a-half-hour film, but to an entire year in in in, in, a, in a promotional cycle. Yeah. Because Jared, so is this your choice? Yeah, Jared Leto, who is a... Tucson actually didn't make a list. He's just repeating everything. No, I do have a fucking list right now. <laughs> and I'm looking at it. I'm just like, like Jared Leto, who pretty much is a... Maybe he's a disaffected sociopath who plays as a as a fucking man child in like Malgoff in, in in Malgoff attire, just makes a total fucking ass of himself. And I remember the the, the interview that that he did is like because I feel like this is all part of performance. It's all his method acting, his approach to methods. Yeah, you know go, what? I don't remember him doing method acting before he won an Oscar. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember him <laughs> at all, really, except yeah. for like in Requiem for a Dream, and I thought that was okay. Um, and no, I haven't seen Mister Nobody, but I need, guess I have to see that because I've seen other films with him though. Yeah, He's, but I don't fucking remember him. You remember him in Panic Room with Cornrows? Oh, Wigger? him, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Um, what did you say, Wigger? No, I said whatever. <laughs> anyway, so he gave this interview where he's just like, you know, what would the the Joker find funny right now? It's like, oh, he'd probably like do this and this stuff. And I'm just like, wow, this guy sounds like he's not playing the Joker, but rather he sounds like that one guy at the Halloween party who takes cosplaying <laughs> as the Joker way too seriously. Fucking tone it down, Kevin. Yeah, tone it down. I'm tired of your shit. Tone it down, Jared. <laughs> Okay. Not inviting you next year. Yeah, we're not inviting Dude, him next year. I was going to say, fucking DC's like, mm-mm. Mm, yeah. yeah. We're going to go s- with the Riddler <clears throat> instead. Can I say about Dear Leader as the Joker? Yeah. And I'm not, like, making a joke when I say this. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm being 100% when I ser- serious when I say that Cesar Romero's Joker is actually scarier than Jared Leto's Joker. Yeah. Like, I know Jared Leto is actually doing a more darker, sinister tone to his Joker, but the utter uh, comic absurdity of Cesar Romero's Joker works better as a malicious he's villain. He's insane. He's so crazy that he's a clown, but he won't shave his mustache. What the fuck? I'm just saying. <laughs> like, it's, it's, what it's, the fuck? That laugh is way more seared into my brain than anything, uh, you know, Jared Leto does. What, did you not like the the... The smile that's tattooed on his hand, how he le- 
like lifts it up to his mouth and he's like, oh, it's like he's smiling, but actually he's not smiling, but he is smiling. I bet he gets that tattoo like removed on a whim and then just reapplied every week. I just, oh, I'm going to need this for this drug deal. Anyway. I mean, was there ever a? I'm trying to think a back. time where I actually felt good about him playing as a Joker. No, I, that wasn't going to be what I said. So thank you for for taking that and running with it. No, uh, a, a time when you've seen somebody and felt like, oh man, this is a total fucking whiff. Right off the bat, because I was excited for this film and packed probably more than any other film we saw this whole year, with the exception of maybe the nice guys. And I just remember being so just middle of the road on this. And I didn't hate it as much as other people did, but it did for the most part nothing for me. But I remember when I saw that second trailer, which still did this film a huge disservice because it was a really good trailer. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of seeing him with a grill and with the word damage tattooed is like, like, did you even try? Like you hear all the, you heard all the shit about Heath Ledger, like locking himself in a room and whatever, if that's just grown into a huge fucking urban mm-hmm. legend for the most part, but that's a person actually trying to develop a character. Yeah. And this is you just not being, harming like, anybody else. <laughs> Or somebody just doing, yeah, you know, it'd be cool if I just tattooed the word damaged on my forehead. Like, what the fuck? Like, it, it's gotta just... gotta know he's damaged. Like, that's like a first draft thing that's like, ah, that's cute, but we're gonna go ahead and delete that because that's one of the dumbest things ever. If it's maybe, right, maybe it, Jared accidentally got that tattoo in real life and they're like, wait, what? You, that's permanent? Yeah, man. You know what, though? God damn it, Jared. I will say this. I... I I only, uh, although he wasn't my selection and I uh, didn't hate his performance quite as much as you did, even though I did not think it was very good at all. Um, boy, he's a perfect fit for this DC universe as the Joker. <laughs> I mean, since <laughs> that's the, DC, the most damning yeah. thing I yeah. could hear. Wow. I can see that. Yeah. Well, it's, unfortunately, uh, this, uh, this whole franchise is going fucking nowhere right Ooh. now. So. We'll see what happens there. You will. Uh, my selection uh, came from a film that you probably could have picked uh, at least three other people uh, from this film. So I just landed on this one. Yeah. Uh, because it was it's somebody that I feel like had a chance to do something in Hollywood, but then completely destroyed themselves and now is fucked. Uh, which says something for somebody else from this film. Uh, that is Liam Hemsworth from Independence Day Resurgence. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else. Okay, that's fine. I thought uh, you were going to say Judd Hirsch. <laughs> like, I knew it was from that movie, but and I was going to say, you motherfucker. No, Judd Hirsch, I mean. <laughs> At least he was having fun. No, he was. And Actually, of everybody in the film, he's the last person I would have put on the list. Okay, great. I'm uh, glad we're in agreement. Another, one of the people who was close, but I didn't think her performance was quite as bad, but she's yeah. she's in Micah. trouble now. Micah Monroe, who couldn't... <laughs> she's could, on probation. Like, she was, like, yeah. on her way after It Follows last year, and now it's like, oh, shit, at least you can, didn't get caught up in the divide, uh, the will, uh, Divergence series, she, but you're, you're, you're in bad shape right now. She might follow the very actual, sadly, typical path of a uh, breakout horror lead actress. Yeah. Anyway. But uh, Liam Hemsworth, who actually was catching some steam after uh, the uh, Hunger Games series, uh, especially someone who's in the shadow of his brother, who has a much 
better career path going right now. Uh, put on a just completely shit performance here that had no redeeming qualities in a film that was just one of the la- most laughably horrible films of the year. And a film that was so, so not in tune with what its actual content was that it thought it was a home run that there would be a third film following yeah. <laughs> Can I just say, this is not a joke, but I forgot he was in it until you just said... <laughs> like fucking I fucking rem- main character! Like, no, but like, I, like, I remember everybody else. I remember Micah, I remember Bill Pullman returning, and yeah. even Brent Spiner's ass. Um, <laughs> but I can't remember Liam Hensworth over Brent Spiner's ass, so that I, says something. I do love the idea that he's on this base by the moon, and then... Uh, even though uh, we have no discussion of uh, how advanced the speed of their technology is now, he arrives uh, almost referring to himself as a taxi driver to pick up Jeff Goldblum like 20 minutes later off of Earth. Like, this is the kind of shit that you would expect from a 1970s sci-fi film. And we have this in this fucking terrible CGI Transformers shit-ass fucking garbage can sequel film that just unfortunately soured my feel on this franchise and that's the thing is i usually try to like separate shit films from its predecessor but man every time i watch independence day now i feel I was like gonna i say, can't this movie does not do that movie any favor oh, no. sadly which that film is ain't that a ain't that fucked up how it fucks up the original film yeah. You can't it's, even. It's a very rare case, but this definitely. You can't even like enjoy the original anymore. I mean, I can because the original film did so many things with physical special effects yeah. that it, it's it's a much different film than and, this. And, and that's not They're even, very much products of their time. That's not even yeah, calling Independence Day high art. I'm just saying that no. it, it's supposed to be dumb fun. It's supposed to be like a like a summer blockbuster, but like. But but like the wow. the use of high speed camera work to show all of the cities getting destroyed and actually it looking pretty good in some instances yeah. and then you go here where you have this ridiculous CGI it almost look it looks fucking terrible it looks like fucking like Star Wars shit from the prequels which was like thirteen years ago like this is the best we could do get the fuck out of here yeah god damn why it. even. I mean, and you know what that's from is, I mean, this film was a total bomb everywhere, so there's a chance that it won't be like the Terminator series that did well in overseas, so it might have a chance to get another film made without James Cameron, probably. But this film, and Nick, you can, because you saw this, right? You can attest to this. Sadly, yes. This film was convinced that it was going to have another film. Yeah, that is one of the most limp. I mean, it is the movie equivalent of a guy accidentally sticking his dick in an ass when he thought he was going up the vagina because it is so off track and so disrespectful to to the body of work that it is trying to service that it is just unfortunate. Shit, this glory hole said stick dick here, but what the fuck? That's what I have to add to that. (laughs) Wow. That was... right. So, moving on from that category uh, to uh, a category that should have a lot of films uh, in contention, uh, and that is Best Cinematography. Let's start with Nick. Uh, For me, it's, without a question, Independence Day Resurgence. Um, This fucking guy. (laughs) Yeah, so, no, but my choice for Best Cinematography 
is a clear winner in my eyes, and I want you both to remain silent, but it is the Neon Demon. I don't think there was a more exquisitely looking movie uh, from last year, and I think whatever faults one finds (laughs) with the movie, I don't know that someone could, like, watch the cinematography and be like, well, that's shit. I mean, (laughs) you know, I don't know that that's possible unless you're stupid. I did like the framing. Well, there we go. Yeah. Um, but I, I, what makes me pick this movie, besides the fact that I genuinely think like every frame's a painting, that kind of cliche, I, <laughs> I, um, is that cinematography in this movie is extremely crucial to the thematic blueprint of satirizing and uh, investigating the fakeness of you know this world of models and of photo shoots themselves so like it it's not just that it's in my opinion amazing looking but it also has to be this level of stagedness and it totally fits uh it's 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 the best use i would say of nicholas winding reference pretension when it comes to framing a movie um but there are so many shots in this movie that i find absolutely striking whether it's um Al Fanning's character against the wall of the motel as the camera zooms out with a spotlight on her. Um, or even the weird scene where she makes out with the Triforce from Legend of Zelda. <laughs> like, the, these are moments that, yes, they're, they're absurd. They're, I, I mean, I, I consider the film a comedy. So if someone says, well, it's just, how can you take it seriously? It's like, I don't. I think it's funny. I think it's kind of brutal, whatever. Um, but I just, there are so many scenes in this movie that are elevated to a status of just, this is why I go see a movie in a theater, you know, um, on the biggest screen. because And it, it it's all starts, too, with the opening title sequence, which is actually a category we're going to do. And I did not choose this, but I do think it bears repeating because I think that the opening title sequence is just, it, it's literally just a frame of what looks like a... Um, what do you call it, frosted glass almost pane uh, that constantly changing colors very slowly while the score uh, by Cliff Martinez, which is fantastic as always, is pulsing through. And that image and that framing, it, it, it just sets up a movie that is follows that to a T. And yeah, sue me. I absolutely love every frame of The Neon Demon. Yeah, The, uh, the Neon Demon was uh, one of the laughably worst films I've ever seen. In my opinion, uh, however, uh, the music I will say, as you are you are mentioning about, it, I own the score to this film from Cliff yep. Martinez, and the music throughout, and the way that the bass from the music is used throughout uh, the different parts of this film, I thought was absolutely wonderful. Um, and I have no arguments against the cinematography, but there's so much more from this film that uh, just strikes <laughs> down for me. But um, it might get mentioned again later for me. There's a uh, sure it will. I. I I know how to go. I, I, I don't know what to think about <laughs> this film anymore. I, I feel like it's 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 got me at a crossroads, and I and I'm just yeah, it, it's not for me. Um, I can appreciate some parts of it, and there are just some parts that I'm just like I'm. I guess I'm just not hip anymore. <laughs> it's like I'm just not one well, of the. No. I, I'm, I'm not one of the kids anymore. I don't get this. <laughs> Tucson, I, no, because of when we talked about it. Yeah, and and, and when. You, we came from where we were in the theater to oh, where yeah. we were after the episode to where yeah. we are. Yeah, get the fuck out of here. To where we are now, seven months later. Yeah. Like, I feel like I could totally understand you, Tucson, here, because it's obviously much different from my perspective. Yeah. But I feel like you, personally, are so conflicted because 
I feel like you feel some of the same things I do about how ludicrously ridiculous some yeah. things are here. Yeah, but I'm also but trying... I, I, on the other side of the coin, yeah. you feel like there are other parts or maybe in some of the same parts that you thought are fantastic at the same time. Yeah, and I'm, so. and, and I'm just trying to like get past the point. It was like, where am I supposed to look past the director of this film? Because I just feel like it, it, it's hard for me to, to, to sort of like disentangle my feelings about Nicholas Winding Refn and my feelings of the Neon Demon because I feel like in a lot of ways they're so inseparable. Like the film could not have come from somebody else, I think. And it's just it's it's con- it's confounding because like some of the, the 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 qualities of him that I do not like are so apparent in this film itself and I'm just like, am I supposed to how am I supposed to read this? I was, even, even the yeah. fucking logo of his name the, at the, the beginning. See, see, <laughs> to we, be fair, that has connotations that. in fashion. Yeah. I, so, I got you. Yeah, I know. So, but it's one of those things where it's like, it, you can't definitively say that it is only pretentious. The, it, it, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what I'm trying to wrap my head around. One just, thing I will say, what's interesting about me loving the Neon Demon this year is that I hated his previous film. So I'm not some yeah. kind of Nicholas Winding Refn, you know, apologist. So it's funny that I hated his other film, and yet this was the year, besides watching Neon Demon, that I personally just dived headfirst into exploitative genre filmmaking. Uh, and, you know, and, and, I mean, this is clearly a throwback to Gallo filmmaking and a lot of other interesting things seem to be a cult and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost weird, and I think I appreciate it because I was making this weird backwards journey at the same time I discovered someone making it new again. Oh, uh, so, okay. Anyway. Yeah, I can see that. So, yeah. yeah. So, just not. Um, best cinematography for me, I already uh, touched on this through our the first half of, of, of this episode, but it has to go to The Handmaid. Yeah, that be- was my second choice. Just because it's so goddamn beautiful. Um, I, I just <laughs> – I can't intelligently talk about how fucking beautiful this is. I love the um, – the uh, it's, it's when, when – it's in the actual library section, and it just sort of like zooms down the the hallway to the actual like what the snake main epitheater. Yes, the snake. Oh my god, this is such a great film. One thing I love about the cinematography yeah. in the Handmaiden is that it goes beyond scenery porn, even though there is a bit of that, especially in the very beginning. Oh yeah, when There's, when they're driving yes. up to the actual stage, which like, looks oh, amazing, but it's also like mwah. whatever. But um, one thing that the cinematography nails in this movie is that. How do you frame a movie that you have to tell from different vantage points but not in a gimmicky way where it's like shot reverse shots are, you know, extra dieted and then, you know, replicated at different – this is truly a unique immersion uh, into the same universe two times over exquisitely fr- – so it's like he had to shoot twice the f- movie – and somehow it's consistently gorgeous. It makes no sense. Yeah, it's holy shit. I need to watch this film again. I think we all should watch it. Yeah, we I all. agree. Anyway, yeah. there you go. Definitely. So, yeah. so my choice uh, is a film that uh, I mentioned uh, earlier in our uh, top six episode as a um, as a best of the rest kind of uh, mention. And I actually mentioned this film earlier on this very part of the episode. Uh, but the work that Stefan Fontaine does uh, for Jackie. Ooh. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. I I think uh, there's a lot of beautiful shots throughout, but also a lot of 
beautiful filmmaking within actions of, of different sequences that aren't just a great looking scene, but a, a great use of the camera. Um, specifically, the one that always comes back to me is a very, uh, I mean, it's it's an important scene because it's it it's taking a historical event and showing you a lot of different parts of it. Uh, where a lot of other films over time have shied away from historical major events, especially things that are like um, assassinations. They don't actually show you where this film embraces that. National tragedies. Yes. Yeah. But, um, or, or um, I'm thinking of the, um, what's the, it's not a great movie, but the uh, the Nicolas Cage film about... World um, Trade Center? Yeah. yeah. That film I should say face off yeah that's also national tragedy uh that film shies away from showing you the actual events of september 11th but this film for sure embraces uh john f kennedy and his assassination and gives you a graphic retelling of it but uh a very mundane scene which follows it but was important to see the action of it and just the look of it was so beautiful is the uh, the car driving away at like 80 miles an hour with Jackie holding John F.'s body and you have the Secret Service man hanging off the back of the car as it's cloudy. They're speeding away down the middle of the empty highway and it was just such a beautiful scene in something that could have felt so just meh. And I felt like Stefan Fontaine made so many of those moments throughout the film feel more important and feel more beautiful than they previously would have. Absolutely. I want to add that when I went and saw this, um, this I saw this with my mother, and when the movie started, within seconds of the movie having you know started playing, I leaned over to my mother and I said, oh, I didn't know this was shot in 16 millimeter. <laughs> and then she goes, what? I got nothing. <laughs> and, then, and I was so excited because I have a, an extremely uh, large fetish for any film in today. Like, not just shot on film, but shot on 16 millimeter film. And, and Jackie was. And it completely doesn't waste that opportunity and um uh god some of those like the the pastels uh, of her jackets and whatnot the way that those literally rub up against the texture of the film grain i just oh god he certainly yeah that's a great choice yeah no and uh he did some some great work and some great use of uh natural daylight and of natural poor lighting too throughout here which and is is something that people sometimes get Meh, like kind of thrown away from, but yeah. there is something to having a scene that is not necessarily perfectly lit. Oh, and, great. Uh, it works great here. And somehow he's able to shoot all of this wonderfully and never make it feel incongruous with the actual um, documentary footage. Mm-hmm. It's not so much that they look so perfectly matched, but they're so perfectly, I would say, entwined that it, it doesn't feel like you're leaving the movie every time you go from one to another. Yeah. So that that's a testament in and of itself. Great work yeah. put on here and uh, actually a really good film. Agreed. So here's a category uh, that I know that everybody kind of fell a little bit meh on because it's just hard to really separate at this time. But something I really feel strongly about is really important is talking about special effects that are not generated from a computer in films. And uh, it was something that I know all of us kind of took on trying to find this and, and didn't really have great things to pull from because there's so many things that are just 
flooded with CGI, even in the real special effects scenes. Um, but it was just a, a, a interesting thing to think about all the films and think about all the fucking computer work that got thrown in. Yeah. So. Uh, my choice for that, for yeah. best non-CGI special effects, mm-hmm. uh, would be um, the brutality in Green Room. Uh, yeah. The And it lasts, I want to say, less than a second. The shot of the uh, arm, the wrist, being like slid open from uh, the original first battle when they're stuck inside the Green mm-hmm. Room, um, and it gets slashed, is... One of the most horrific things I've seen in a movie, particularly because of how short it is, but also because of, yeah, the use of practical effects and the melding together of an actual flesh and bone human being uh, working with just a good old-fashioned prop, you know, arm and and, uh, squib. And I absolutely love that. And there's a few other things in there, too, that completely work that are not CGI, like whether it's the marriage of a a shotgun blast Mm -hmm. um, of the audio of that and the actual, um, you know, temperament that it blows up and whatnot. Uh, I will give an honorable mention. I watched some behind-the-scenes footage of X-Men Apocalypse uh, yeah. when that Blu-ray came out. And, you know, I'm not going to say that other Marvel films don't do this because, A, I don't know enough about other Marvel films, and I'm sure that they do. But I think because the X-Men films are always uh, sidelined, I was surprised by how much of that's not CGI. I mean, a lot of it is CGI. I'm not saying <laughs> it's not. When the pyramid's rolling down. <laughs> no, especially that <laughs> opening scene. That's definitely. But I was surprised by like the final battle that takes place in that desert area. Like a lot of that's created. Like I, I I'm so used to seeing behind the scenes where everything is green. Mm-hmm. And where it's clear that they didn't need a set designer because, and that's not the case here. Here, I, I literally saw the back, uh, the behind-the-scenes footage of uh, the actors playing Storm on wires, flying, a missed actual set decoration, and I thought the the marriage of those practical effects with the CGI actually created a pretty interesting uh, climatic battle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to give them some praise since they don't give it enough. Good stuff. Anyway, Tucson, I know you had a you had kind of a. Hard time really grasping something yeah, I, particular on these it, categories. It's really hard for me to do that. So I think that I'm going to have to echo Nick's sentiment. And this is not me just trying to like – Yeah, uh, uh, I'm going to have to agree about Green Room simply because I think that that has inadvertently become one of the most iconic parts of that film. Yeah. Of the scene of, of the, the guy with the red laces and, and his hand getting like just, just absolutely butchered because I actually – just just recently, Mondo released like the new posters that they're going to be releasing, oh. and for Green Room, it actually has like a bisected really? arm. Yeah, Ooh. that's that, gotta get that. That, 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 that. That's their poster for it. Like that's what it's known for. Like holy shit! Oh, that was so. If that movie had a bigger budget, the dog would have been CGI. Yeah, and that sounds like a joke, but that's actually one of the most terrifying scenes in that movie because of how well they trained the dog to do. Obviously, exactly. Well, both <laughs> in the movie <laughs> and out of the actual as an actor. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but like the the lunge through the club, a darkened club after the power goes out of that dog. You know, I mean, those are things you can't recreate with CGI to the same effect. I agree. I'm. I'm a huge proponent of physical effects. I mean, we we've seen them in so many classic films. We've talked about it recently with The Thing and with Alien. I mean, yeah. these classic horror sci-fi films that yeah, used cool. fantastic the physical new Alien effects. 
I was saying, let's hope the new Alien uh, tries to continue the same. I mean, I know there's going to be CGI. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you watch the trailer, yeah, right. plenty there. But I, I hope there's more up his sleeve. I think there something that I, I will say that I absolutely love about the new Star Wars series, not necessarily Rogue One, although there was some of it, but not as much. But um, I really appreciate how hard they tried in The Force Awakens to include physical effects throughout. And I think that's going to be an important thing going forward because I've felt for a long time that the over-reliance on CGI is such an awful misstep for so many uh, Hollywood movie houses. And, And the idea that melding CGI and physical effects together could be such a fucking great work yeah, of, of art and and the just over reliance on it to the to the point of Chris Pratt fucking having to hug a CGI dinosaur in Jurassic World like why did you do that <laughs> I just can't wrap my head around some of the decisions that are made and it's just great. it's just r- ridiculous so for me, uh, I have a, a clear winner and then an honorable mention. Uh, my winner for best use of special effects that weren't CGI was the absolute fantastic crash scene on Las Vegas Boulevard in Jason Bourne. That was like made from your brain. It was. It was perfect. It was a large scale, um, just completely had to be perfectly staged because you only had very limited opportunities to actually make it happen. I was going to say, it's one of those things where you can only imagine that they only had one take. Like, they could only do it once. Even if they had multiples, it wasn't a lot. Like, you you did not have a lot of chances to to make that work right, and um, I think it actually ended up working out fantastically. That specific scene and that chase scene actually goes on a little bit too long, but... The the moment when the enormous crash happens right in front of the Bellagio Fountains is just one of those things where seeing the actual crash happen with your own eyes and knowing it wasn't created with a computer, you, you could tell that yeah. it's real. Like You could tell that those are real cars landing on top of each other in this huge fucking catastrophe of chaos in the middle of a, one of the most busiest sections of road in the world. And it's just... It's just one of those things that it's amazing to see film capture a real event happening like that. And um, I will say my honorable mention is a film that uh, myself and Nick know personally a a lot of the uh, unique things they had to do with it uh, involving... uh, I forgot about that. Yeah, involving non-CGI effects, and that was Swiss Army Man, uh, which did use CGI sporadically throughout, but did a lot of really creative things with filmmaking to create some wonderful special effects. Yeah, I completely because obviously that wasn't a movie I love, but yet yeah. that's an element that's like undeniable. Yeah, so I kind of completely uh, miss that, but I completely concur. Yeah, um, and it's uh, something that I would actually. Uh, I'm assuming there's mention of it because I actually haven't watched uh, the uh, commentary on the Blu-ray yet, but I would encourage anyone who likes that film. To check that out, specifically because myself and Nick saw the uh, the post film viewing uh, Q and A with the Daniels, and they have a lot of interesting thoughts and actually give you a lot of of feeling of information on the film when we saw them talk, 
And I can just imagine them going through specific scenes and mentioning things about it would actually be quite good. And they're entertaining. Yeah. Like, David Fincher is not entertaining, but he's so knowledgeable that that's why his commentaries work, whereas uh, most people have to at least be somewhat entertaining. And I could definitely see their commentary being very worth a listen, even for someone like myself who didn't love the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to the best scene of this uh, past year in film. Well, I have one last tie. Okay. I know. Uh, the first is what I call litigation and recollection from Manchester by the Sea, uh, which is the scene in which Lee goes to meet with the lawyer uh, to discuss the uh, legal guardian <laughs> uh, situation of, of his nephew. And in this scene, um, Jesus Christ or appears or (laughs) as you might know I'm Kenneth Lonergan (laughs) Um, Uh. orchestrates something so beautiful so profound so devastating in what you know basically a scene within a scene because we we as the audience go through all of Lee's emotions that he feels in this very benign uh litigious scene because we then get backtracked through uh, his recollections of the past and what's bubbling to the surface of what he's clearly been trying to forget for years um, as to why this particular decision to make him the legal guardian uh, does not sit well with him. And um, it's tied with my other scene because of the fact that, I wouldn't say it's a cheat, but this is certainly a different kind of scene where it's got this uh, Russian dolls-like structure of being uh, you know, a memory within a scene, but it truly is from the moment he sits down at the lawyer's office to the moment he, you go on a journey <laughs> um, from the original tragedy to the aftermath in the police station um, <laughs> while we're still going back and forth. It's not like we dip only into that, but um, and to, to follow that as an audience, especially first time viewing and, you know, for at least for myself, I didn't know that that was coming and, yeah. um, and to have to go endure that the same way he is. Um, it's just, it's one of the best uses of editing I've ever seen where something is not, jumbled for the sake of being cool or for being Tarantino-esque, but for actually just fucking gutting you as an audience member. A a very simple and actually somewhat short scene from that film, uh, which is separate from what you're describing right now, and that's a film that I was kind of lukewarm on for the most part, Um, but the, the scene involving Lee and Michelle Williams' character when she almost comes back to talk with him uh, late in the film. Where she invites him to lunch? Um, yeah, it, it, it's really more, it's really, I think it I, maybe it's only seen the film the once, but it's really when she meets him for the last time. Yeah, that's the scene. That's the yeah. scene. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty obvious scene for something that's, yeah. you know, uh, an over the top performance, not saying she's giving it over, but just a very emotional scene, uh, that is, but that is just a wonderful scene in that film. Agreed. That uh, uh, has lots of them, actually. But yeah. yeah. Um, and one thing I'll say one more about the, the scene in question is that what I love about the that lawyer scene is that when he starts to rec- uh, recall that night, he doesn't start with the most horrific thing. that I've, like He starts with him playing ping pong and with his buddies completely drunk and Michelle Williams, as, who's his wife at the time, comes in to like tell him to leave. And it, it lures the audience into a false sense of security that life is one way when really it might be another. And I just absolutely love that it's not so much that 
he's remembering the tragedy of everything, even though that's certainly part of it, but he's remembering just how quickly his life changed. It it was one way moments before it wasn't, and it completely uh, understandably blindsides him. And it's actually really, you know, something that's a, a bigger thing throughout the film because physically and in terms of who he is uh, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of his life and how his life continues on through his non-personal life, he's pretty much the same guy throughout. Yeah. Uh, but obviously... By choice. Right. Yeah. But no, but uh, more so we see the, the internal sort of anguish that he goes through and, and something that... Uh, someone cannot escape even on the surface in that uh, he has a line late in the film that is just heartbreaking. Um, and, yeah, he's probably... I know that babies taste best. Yeah, yeah that would have been something if he said that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, uh, Casey Affleck, something, somebody that we haven't really mentioned throughout any parts yeah. of this, uh, is the clear frontrunner to win Best Actor here, and he is putting on a uh, a really strong performance in this film. And... Again, it wasn't a huge uh, game changer for me. Uh, it was Manchester by the Sea, but uh, Casey Affleck definitely uh, giving a strong performance here for sure. Agreed. And the the other scene that it was tied with, um, and this is more of a typical scene as far as it doesn't break to any other location or anything like that, um, is the centerpiece of the movie, Indignation. Okay. Uh, this, this scene... That's the Logan Lerman? Yes. Okay. This scene in question is like the reason to see the movie. Whatever you think about the movie, it doesn't matter. Like, I, I want everybody to watch this movie just so that you get to what's basically a 15-minute uninterrupted scene in which the protagonist of this Philip Roth novel... Uh, brought to screen, uh, played by Logan Lerman, goes to uh, see the dean at his college because he's going to be reprimanded for something, so to speak. And the conversation that ensues between them is one of the most uncomfortable, intense, and just flat-out dramatic uh, scenes I've seen in any movie, and definitely probably the best scene of all that I've seen uh, from last year. It is... um, It's like, I can't really explain it because you have to watch the whole movie to really understand the build-up, but once you get to it, it's like it's a scene that made me want to pass out because it is putting its main character through a ringer that is so uh, insufferable and so... um, filled with persecution that it's just fascinating to watch. It's absolutely a a showcase of two actors doing amazing work. And it's one of those situations where I'm like, damn, you could have made a whole movie from just this, you know, and I know I'm a sucker for just putting two people in a room, but when it's as compelling as it is, and clearly it knows it because it's, it's, like I said earlier, uninterrupted for 15 minutes. um, It's, it's a showstopper. And like if the Oscars had best scene as a category, I I think it would win hands down. Like, I, I don't know that anybody could watch this movie and not basically think it was the, the greatest, uninterrupted 15-minute piece of filmmaking because of everything that happens within it. Kind of reminds me uh, what you're describing, and not that it's similar in terms of its content necessarily, but uh, reminds me of a film that I've kind of thought less of over time, but I still think it's a really fantastic film, and that's the Clint Eastwood film Changeling. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a 10-minute sequence where... 
uh, a kid is describing how he's lived on ah. this farm where someone has been murdering children for the past. Yeah. And it is like a revelation for yeah. the person he's telling it to. And the way he describes it, getting so in-depth and giving very intimate details. And then you see those intimate details turn into images on the screen. Uh, so many parts of that individual scene are just so fantastic and something that is a clear best part of that film. And um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I could definitely see that. It's definitely the scene in the movie, uh, as far as indignation, like that ends and begins and ends with itself. Like, mm-hmm. not that you should turn the movie off, but like it, it is the, it is the climax of the film almost, even though it's only the halfway point. Yeah. Um, and then just having to live with what happens in that room afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's actually a scene that when I saw it, I think you would love. I don't know how you'd feel about the whole movie, but knowing what you think about certain things, and I won't even say what they are, so you won't be primed to know what may transpire in that room, uh, I think you would absolutely love that 15-minute sequence. I may have to watch it then. So, yeah, we'll I would want to watch it with you. Oh, well, maybe we'll do that <laughs> one of these years. Yeah. Tucson, still awake over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to the uh, second part of the top six. Thank you. Episode and Alex. your feeling for best scene. My favorite scene of this year was... Black Philip totally <laughs> goring the father and like pushing him into a fucking mountain of wood. Yeah. I especially loved when he hopped on his hind legs like he was going up to the three fro line at a Yeah, yeah, everybody get up. It's time to <laughs> slam now. <laughs> I was, I, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, about the boxing kangaroo from Kangaroo <laughs> Jack. Oh no. You haven't seen the uh the that video from the like white trash Australian guy who's the one who boxing. punched him. Yeah, like because he was hurting his dog or something. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. Did you see the follow up to that? Yeah. Do you see no. The, like no? Where like he lives in like literally he lives in a glass house and stuff, right? And he's just like he turns a corner, and <laughs> you s- you see the you see the kangaroo. <laughs> I know he, it had a sequel. He found him, and he <laughs> wants a, he. <laughs> He the kangaroo wants, a, wants re- a rematch? He wants a rematch. I will show you. I'll show you after the podcast. Anyway. Man, we woke Tucson up. That, yeah. that He's woke. He's going to put the glasses back on. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, man, I fucking love Black Phillip. <laughs> Who so, doesn't? You so, are Black Phillip. I was going to say, right? you're named after him. Black Phillip, yeah. Black Phillip. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's my favorite scene of the year. I got you. Yeah. My favorite scene of the year was actually, this is one of my easiest choices uh, from... Uh, the list of 15 categories. It's the scene where she eats the eyeball, right? And the neon demon. That is uh, not the selection I made. Uh, however, uh, the scene I did pick was the battle scene between the Avengers in Captain America Civil War, which uh, for a film that I really quite enjoyed and thought was fantastic, uh, I had some issues with a lot of uh, the way that the action was structured and the way the story went throughout uh, and actually some of the weird comedy beats uh, throughout the beginning parts of this film. But this 12-minute scene, uh, kind of right before the third act of this film, was quite possibly the high point of uh, this Marvel enormous Avengers Infinity Stone uh, series only because it felt like this was one of those things where you could just watch something and enjoy watching it instead of having to know about every single little act that they've made throughout. You got to see the characters interact with each other. 
fight against each other, even though they're supposed to be on the same team. There are so many great moments and lines and specific scenes, and it just all just it it all just worked for some reason, and it was just fantastic. I will admit, as a non Marvel fan, um, that fight sequence is easily the most I've ever been invested in the action choreography of a Marvel fight scene. And I think part of it is probably due to the emotional connection you've had with following the characters for so many, whatever. But in general, it's the most fluid and coherent and exciting that, uh, in my opinion, um, any Marvel action scene has been. Ant-Man is the best he has ever been in that film and not in his own film. But that's owed for a lot of different reasons. And it's it's it sucks because yeah. he and Spider Man and actually other characters are perfectly utilized in that scene where they are just minor parts of it mm-hmm. that get their chance, yeah. but they're not overkill. Yeah, and it works and it, it's fabulous yeah. for the most part. And uh, that scene just here's your shield, Captain America. Yeah, that's that's great. <laughs> it's fucker. And it's just, I mean, the idea of him uh, perfectly. Perfectly being utilized, being inside Iron Man's suit and like disabling parts of it uh, is. I it's mean, your that's, conscience. <laughs> it's it's your conscience. Yeah. It just the the whole thing, the Pulled whole pa- the whole package just worked out so wonderfully. And yeah. uh, that scene is one of those things that every time I saw this in theater, which was three times, yeah. um, I that was the thing I by far looked forward to seeing, and it was just wonderful. You know what I think is kind of a little bit of a miss opportunity. Nick, what you, what you were just mentioning when uh, when Ant Man goes inside his suit and just like breaks it apart and he says he's his conscience, just like you could have made like a like a Jiminy Cricket like wisecrack. I mean, since you're owned by Disney, of all things, like yeah, uh, maybe that wouldn't have uh, landed. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like that weird moment in the Tomorrowland when George Clooney does the Donald Duck voice and it's just... oh god, oh yeah, <laughs> man. I, I mean, I defend that movie. I forgot about that. Not that moment. <laughs> wow. Um, so moving hmm. on to the best ending of any film this year. Okay, I have one more tie. Okay. <laughs> I guess I had more ties than I thought. Anyway, um, one thing I'll say right away is uh, The Fits, which was a movie that was at Sundance that I caught up with after the festival. And that is the epitome of an ending. I wouldn't say saving a movie, but like I was unsure about the entire movie until the ending, and by the ending, I mean like the last five minutes comes completely knocked me off my feet to the point where I now need to watch the whole movie again to see how it fits with that. But it's not a big twist. It's not a whatever. It's just such a weirdly surreal and graceful note to end that story on. And I won't even really say anything about it because if you haven't seen it, you won't understand it. And if you haven't seen it, then really you should watch it just to experience it blind. So that's a shout out to the fits. The other, probably my pick for favorite ending is The Lobster. Um, It's funny because I think in general, I'm not like gaga about ambiguous endings, even though it probably seemed like I am. But what I love is when an ambiguous ending is done right to the point where I don't actually find the ending itself ambiguous. And it's not to say that there can't be different interpretations of the ending and what will follow after the cut, but because it is so... I think confident in its storytelling and and stark in its decision to end where it does that the image of Colin Farrell with a knife to his eye uh, while Rachel Wise's character sits out at the diner 
and we just sit with that moment is so evocative that it doesn't matter what you think happens in that bathroom. Like that image, to me at least, is so powerful and says enough already that the movie has already ended. The fact that it (laughs) cuts off and makes the viewer themselves decide what's going to happen post uh, uh, that scene is just like icing on the cake. And, um, and, and when I watch it too, it's, I, I don't even think it's ambiguous in the nature that like I'm strongly defiant in one camp uh, where I'm like, oh, it's so obvious that he uh, doesn't cut out his eye. And yet somebody makes the opposite argument. I totally understand, but it, it is, it's just so, I don't know, unique and, um, so in tune with itself and its thematic uh, messages that that was like the one time all year last year where I saw a movie in the theater, it ended and I just couldn't get up until the entire credits were rolled because I just like, I was stunned by what I had just seen. So uh, the lobsters ending, uh, certainly a, uh, I would say a quieter ending than a lot of other films, but no less powerful. So, yeah, my favorite ending was Lobster too. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come out of this, perhaps to add, add something that perhaps like Nick didn't in, in, in a way is like, but he, no, you covered all the bases, and, and I, and I totally, am, totally in, in agreement with you on all of that. But I think that I love ambiguous endings. Yeah, just, just, just to, to put it out there, it's like I love like dwelling in that uncertainty and just like working out what that ending means to me on my own on on my own level. I love like making the audience work and making them think and not giving them the easy catharsis or gratification they they need but rather the that they want but rather the 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 thoughtfulness and the the uncertainty that they need. Absolutely. Um, I think that what really strikes me about that ending is like how it's how <laughs> how terrifying that society is that these two lovers like have to, that, that even though they're, they're, they sort of elope out of the, 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 the dichotomy between these two different sides, yep. they're still ensnared within the idea, the, the ideological framework that they have to have some sort of, 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 of a, a and B commonality. Yep. They have to match in some way because if not, then they can't be together to so much to the point that one person is willing to sacrifice their eyesight to 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 maul themselves, to to injure themselves willfully in order to just escape the the the, the possibility of, of of being alone. Well, and it's not just in order to escape, it's also the duality of escaping, but also to fit in. Yeah. Because if they don't, then they, they'll be found out by... Yeah. But they, they have to present that, so to speak, to uh, yeah. the world at large. It, it's so unbearably tragic in that the tragedy of it is not something that hits you immediately, but rather it is it is that we are so... That we ourselves, because we're watching this film, are so, like, wrapped up in the actual like mood of this film that we ask ourselves the questions like did they do it or did they not do it it's like i feel like that is a is so much more complicated so much more satisfying sort of open-ended ending than just like did the top fall or does it keep on spinning or whatever like that you know that ending works because as a viewer when you're watching it and you see the image of him with the knife close to his eye it, for me at least you know that ending works because 
as an audience member, we're already grossed out because we can already see mm-hmm. a possibility that he he would possibly do this. Whereas I think a lot of movies, if they weren't as, I think, brilliant as The Lobster, wouldn't really earn that it would just be kind of a throwaway, like, oh, they decided to end it like this. Where instead, we're like he. it's almost like uh, Yorgos Lanthimos knows that he doesn't have to show us the ending because we'll make it much worse in our heads yeah, if like, that's the possibility. It, it's, it's the question of... I, I think that the ending is sort of ingenious in that way because so many people will assume that he would do that, but it's it's left to linger for so so much time that you're forced to like fill it in for yourself because which of the two situations that we could see being presented is more heartbreaking, yep. and which one would we rather choose? Like to see that woman who's blind to be just left by David to have David just leave or for David to literally blind himself to and, just be with this woman. And let's not forget the like the Ugh. literal final shot is her at the table with a wide shot of everything outside and the people walking. So as a viewer, like you know that we live in a cynical society because we are looking for him to mm-hmm. walk past the frame. Yeah. And when he doesn't because it cuts to black, then we're almost like uh, damning ourselves yeah, for what exactly. we think might happen. Yeah. yeah. So that is my favorite ending of the year, The Lobster. I like you too, son. Oh, I like you too, Nick. Oh. Alex, what bullshit do you have for us? Oh. <laughs> son of a bitch. Oh. I actually have a tie, believe it or not, for ah. the best ending of the year. Uh, my first one, will you guys will think will blast me, but I don't give a fuck. Um, Rogue One was a fantastic ending for me, uh, specifically because uh, the fallout from that final act where everyone just gets fucking massacred from the Death Star, which Boilers. was... Yeah, whatever. That's fine. Uh, if you haven't seen it by now, then you probably didn't really care to see it. Um, that was such a perfect way to send this movie, and really the only way I thought it could go. And uh, I'm just glad that Disney just went for it and just did it and said, fuck it, we're going to kill off all these characters. And we've created all these characters who could have been used in the franchise, but now they're gone. Um, and I thought that was great. And... I mean, obviously, just a straight up, just one of the ultimate fan service moments of all time. Uh, the Darth Vader moment at the end of the film was just so fucking fantastic that I cannot get over how great that was. So, yeah, that was just a, a fun, entertaining finale and what was definitely the best part of that film. Can I say something about sure. the Rogue One ending? Mm-hmm. I said a lot of shit about the movie, but also about the ending. Uh, when we did our episode, I will say one thing that... I don't know if it doesn't make me like the movie anymore, but uh, that is sadly retroactively more beautiful in passing over time. Like, I know for a fact, if I were to rewatch that movie, the final image of a young Carrie Fisher, no matter how sick it is, in my opinion, as far as just corporate uh, whatever to reappropriate actual people, but uh, would definitely get to me a little bit because... uh, there is something that's eerily fitting and almost uh, based on a premonition uh, as far as, unfortunately, what the future held for the actual actress. That I, I'm glad that she plays such a iconic like shot in, in that ending. Uh, well, and the other thing is, too, something we definitely did hit on is the over-reliance of CGI-created real people yeah uh, which is becoming more and more something we're seeing uh and you have the stark difference of that which is a straight up cameo which is 
I thought didn't look that bad at all in the split second, really, that you see it, which, I mean, it's like three seconds or four, whatever. But then you have the difference of the Grand Moff Tarkin, which is like ten minutes of Peter I mean, Cushing Yeah, screen, I definitely think so. that's worse. Yeah. And this will be blasphemy, but I, it's not that I don't want to see her in Episode Eight because, I, A, I know she'll be in it and whatnot, but I do think it would have been completely and uh, sadly, but fitting if that was like her last moment uh, in a Star Wars franchise to be the almost the face of idealism and hope in a yeah. sad world. Anyway. Yeah. Especially, I mean, say with it with our times and this is, uh, you know, the most uh, popular. Shit uh, is fucked right now. <laughs> yeah. Most popular film franchise, but you have a, a I mean, albeit white, but you have a woman in a uh, destroyed culture for the most part talking about having hope yeah. where you have a, a nevertheless very, she persisted you have a very hopeless feel to a lot of people now especially with uh you know this large movement against certain people like betsy defos and still just sl- slides right through so we live frederick in a douglas nightmare. what's that frederick douglas i mean these people are being persecuted frederick douglas is rising from the dead i mean like we live in a nightmare hell dimension right now, okay? Oh, the uh, the yeah. other film, uh, this film has been mentioned by my co-host yeah. previously, but the other film that I uh, had on my list for best ending was actually Moonlight. Ah. Uh, that final 30 minutes was absolutely okay. fantastic. Yeah. And uh, the, the way this film ended off and just went to the finale, cutting to the very final scene uh, with him turning around as a child on the beach uh, yeah. in the night. Um, the way that all just blended together was just so beautiful and so perfect. And uh, that last final act, and that specifically last about 10 minutes or so, was just by far for me the, the, the thing that made this film so good. And uh, I was a fan. I will say that this almost made my runner-up as, like, best ending, but then because of ultimately, because I love the ending to Moonlight, uh, but ultimately because the thing is following what I think is the greatest scene in the movie and what almost ended up being my best scene, which is uh, Kevin and Chiron's second first date. Mm -hmm. Um, But because there's still a lot of film after that, not a lot, but uh, enough where whatever, that's the only reason why I didn't include it, but I'm glad you did because I absolutely love it. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. So let's do a stark difference, and oh. that is the worst ending of a film. Worst ending? Yeah. All right. Well, my uh, choice for that, as I have written down, is Finding Dory, because I thought that was a piece of shit. Um, yeah, I thought everything from – I just thought everything that happens in the last 30 minutes of Finding Dory – is so beneath Disney. <laughs> and and I know Disney in and of itself is a corporate, you know, entity that certainly has its own oblivious and kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, narrow-minded view it of the world. It doesn't give them excuse to make shit. Right. And so ultimately, the pairing of the most... I mean, when I go see a Pixar movie, I usually go see it because I'm always going to be surprised by how it subverts, I would say loud and uh, chaotic animated movie endings. And when a, and here we have an octopus driving a fucking truck. So the fact that that's what <laughs> starts that final act, and then it moves into territory that I find downright offensive. Spe- was, an, an octopus that's voiced by Al Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> was that supposed to be like a, like a reference to Possession? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> but it's good to know where your mind's at. <laughs> um, but here, because we go from that ridiculous set piece that I did not find entertaining whatsoever into something that's even more offensive in my eyes, in which Dory's mental handicap is solved by the sheer will of love, I just thought everything about this uh, was just sick and gross and corporate Disney at its worst, and it fucking infuriated me like i didn't hate the movie before the ending but when the ending that last act happened um it just it completely sank to one of the worst disney movies i've ever seen Mm -hmm. there we go okay yeah so the worst ending that i've seen this past year was sully because what (laughs) the fuck was that oh man that whole movie was like what the fuck was that but then i wish it would happen in july (laughs) (laughs) that bullshit right there that's exactly why that was the worst ending for me i was just like oh man why and and it just forgot about that it just fades to exactly you forgot about it i'm glad you brought this fades to black (laughs) and then it turns then, then they got like all the people who are on the plane in front of the plane and they're all having some type of like reunion you know some shit I'm just like what the fuck am I watching right oh, now oh yeah the credits where what you're actually what the fuck was that oh god Eastwood you fucking hack I... like <laughs> oh god why didn't you bring this up <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm doing a total 180 right because now. I'm because really... at first I was happy, but now I'm a... <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. This is fucking bullshit. Exactly. Yeah, it's the worst ending uh... <laughs> for a film that... Oh my God, what the fuck? Thankfully, it certainly did not get the same uh, platform as like American Sniper did. Yeah. yeah. But, so yeah. I don't have to hear about Man, it. There yeah. was... <laughs> There was just no purpose for that movie, by the way, too. Yeah. To, to, quote, to quote you when we did that episode, no one is on the other <laughs> side of this debate. I make myself Nobody laugh. is saying that he's not a hero, that those people didn't die. <laughs> no, those people should have died. It's like, what? We're going to watch a simulation. I was going to say, how about the like six replays they do of the same... Oops. How, co- how, fine. how come you don't add take a bit more wind to that one? How about you don't take okay. uh, human error into effect? Oh. Oh. Well, we're going to call the up. Uh, looks like, uh oh. Oh, boy. Yeah, that, that movie was just not good. It was yeah, awful. It's fucking dumb. Should have been a Dateline 20 minutes. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah. Should have stayed. Yeah. All right, Alex. Remember how many people wanted to have sex with Sully? That was weird. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. yeah. I love worst? you. What room are you in? Oh, I know. I have key. Woo. Uh, my worst yes. ending was actually uh, pretty much was an easy decision, uh, and that was 10 Cloverfield Lane. Mm. Um, yeah, I really wasn't loving that film, but when it got to its final scene and then really committed to it, I thought that was terrible. Yeah. And, I uh, yeah. am completely with you in the sense that... I like that movie quite a bit more than you did, but I definitely uh, agree to the sentiment that that ending hampers whatever you think of that movie, if if you're not already liking it, so yeah. to speak. I, for one, I like that ending, yeah. but I'm, I'm not going to – I would not go to bat for that ending. I can totally see why people do not enjoy it, and from your argument when we had that episode uh, about how you felt that ending could have been better done – like I, I, I actually agree with that. I think there are so many things you could do better about the and and also so many aspects of it that just feel to to the point of like isn't there something when she's driving away like the the mailbox says Cloverfield Lane or something yeah, like yeah. that's what yeah I mean it's, well that, yeah whatever but I, I know but however it just, it just added, I'm more upset it, about the it actual. just added to the ridiculousness yeah. of How, the entire thing however 
if there's one thing that I can take away from our discussion with that, like I'm, I'd like to think that I I put my argument across yeah. for the Cloverfield universe. I, that's no, fine. I'm yeah, yeah. I'm that, that's you. not even necessarily the the aspect yeah, of, of exactly. that ending that I'm that I'm even a, yeah. going against it. It was just the idea of me being on the edge of my seat, yeah. following Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, and hoping that there was going to be a moment that I was like, "Holy shit! This is this made this film feel." purposeful after yeah. it seemed kind of meh yeah and it went the other way where i was like ah i will say your answer to this question of where sending is perfect in my eyes because of the fact that out of all the movies we've said here um 10 cloverfield lane would be the one out of the three we've named that i would like find myself watching on cable when i see it on mm-hmm. and then turn it off <laughs> before the ending actually happened like the other two i wouldn't even watch to begin with yeah. but that would be like an actual distinction of like no no territory <laughs> yeah yeah it's just like the fucking like war of the worlds mm-hmm. creation of that yeah thing that was fly- oh, that was fucking shit yeah but if only to to put aside the to to put forward the argument that naming it 10 chlorophyll lane like however you feel about the production of that film whatsoever is like i think it's fitting for what that franchise is yeah. attempting to do whether it succeeds at it like we will see so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. okay so we had worst ending how about worst film uh, my worst film uh, is a no-brainer. I, I I liked. I would say there are movies this year that I would re- not rewatch. I don't know how to phrase this, so to speak, but like I would maybe rewatch this before I rewatch some other movies, like Star Wars Rogue One, maybe because they're just so not for me. So I chose a movie that I thought was not just awful, but something that should have been up my alley, uh, and that's Captain Fantastic. I thought this was piece of shit it disappointed me on a lot of different levels one being that i absolutely loved matt ross's previous film uh 28 hotel room so i really thought even though i didn't care for the trailer even the premise like i'm like oh but he knows what he's doing um he doesn't maybe 28 hotel rooms was a fluke want to see my stab at garden state yeah (laughs) that's sad um because And and I'll say that as someone who actually kind of likes Garden State, but like <laughs> Garden State is a relic of two thousand like three or so. Yeah. Anyway, um, but Captain Fantastic pissed me off for so many reasons. <laughs> a for yeah, like I just mentioned, the uh, untapped potential of a director who I thought could maybe go somewhere. B because it is tapping into a. A plot line that I always have strong opinions on, which is any movie that concerns itself with parenting. Like, that, that that's the main theme, like, whether somebody's a good or a bad parent or whatever. So if, if you're doing that, <laughs> I'm either going to hate you or love you because I'm very fascinated by that idea and whatnot. And here, I thought this movie completely... Uh, doesn't understand its protagonist and thinks he's a saint who makes mistakes uh, when really I think he's just the world's biggest asshole. Um, And so I just think it's an awful movie. And it's too bad because I think there's a lot of great actors. I think there even maybe are moments that I enjoyed watching it. But holy shit, uh, nothing pissed me off more than Captain Fantastic, especially because a lot of people liked it. Yeah, Viggo Mortensen doesn't get enough work. He, he doesn't, and he's things. not like bad in here because yeah. he's following the script. Yeah. Um, but man, uh, this was such a waste of uh, screen time. I remember you when you saw this and giving your rating and just being like, "Yep, that looks like a Nick rating." 
Yeah, I it's believe just, it. Like I'm sure if anybody else saw it, like at the very least, they'd just be like middle of the road, like eh, like two and a half or whatever. Yeah. But no, this pissed me off. So, <laughs> yeah, Captain Fantastic is easily the one that I had the most visceral hatred for. What about you, Tucson? Sausage Party. Yeah, yeah I can see that. Yeah, yeah. it's um, <laughs> that's th- up there. Th- this film uh, is um, <laughs> to quote. Boy, I really to, wish I would have not forgotten that douche. To, uh, <laughs> to, to paraphrase the great animator Hayao Miyazaki, I strongly believe that this is an insult to life <laughs> itself. Um, I feel like this is horrendous both on and behind the screen about the story of the animators who were exploited in the crunch time to create it and to create such a, in my mind, a shit film. I think it's bad. I think the humor is bad. I think Seth Rogen should feel bad. Um, fuck this film. No. So I will say that yeah. um, I'm with you in the sense that I hated it as well. And it makes me mad because I am a pretty ardent defender of Seth Rogen's movie. Not his, but his actual writing, directorial stuff. Because for the most part, I always find something I at least like. And that was not the case here. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this was not good, and it's too bad because this was something I thought could be really entertaining, and yeah. it just uh, whiffed on a lot of levels for yeah. me. This was an eighty one worst film of the year was Neon Demon because it was fucking terrible. So it's okay. I've highlighted everything I just absolutely despised about this, and it brought nothing to the table of me, and I thought it was. One of the laughably worst movies I've ever seen. So, Are you telling me yeah. that The Neon Demon is worse than Complete Unknown? Uh, yeah. Because sure. you Damn, were son. put to sleep, basically, by Complete Unknown. How yeah. can a movie that makes you feel things... Um, how, <laughs> yeah, could a, I mean, how could a movie that makes you feel things be worse than a film that sends you into narcolepsy? <laughs> I still found some minor redeeming qualities, like... <laughs> Okay, that's fine. Like, the first 30 minutes when I thought, maybe there still could be something here for complete Well, at least unknown. the Neon didn't yeah. fuck around and told you in the first minute, no, this is stupid. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, that's true. Uh, but, got so many moments that I just thought were just laughably horrible. And then, uh, for some people, felt that this film went in a wonderful direction at the end. And for me, I was like... This is terrible. Then I was like, oh, this is entering a complete lunacy at the end. And then, oh, this is just complete shit. Uh, yeah. And that was uh, that was some definitely very interesting theater experience. As uh, Was it? That was a theater that was completely up for grabs. And everybody was enjoying their time during the last act, except for Nick, who was miserable because he was actually enjoying the film. Sorry that some people like to actually you know, no. cherish their art. I am... One hundred percent agreeing with with your feeling on it, but uh, that evening in that theater in June of two thousand sixteen—that was, was the uh, beginning of the film tank cold war. Well, <laughs> well, that actually kind of started with Deadpool because oh yeah, oh, yeah that remember, was contentious. I remember that. Yeah, because uh... Nick had very strong negative opinions on that and let everybody know yeah. that that he had them. Man, I'm sorry for that. We we all apologized and hugged it out. No, we did. No, on, we, both, we, on, both, on both occasions, actually. Well, yeah. Actually, I feel like we, we did that for Deadpool, but I feel like 
the the adage don't go to bed mad uh yeah. We we didn't do that with the Neon Demon because I kind of just like Oh, you fucking, just kind of drove away. Yeah, yeah, I just like was like fuck you guys and then I just drove away whatever. Yeah. But that's because I knew our friendship wouldn't actually endure. Um, yeah. Now that was that was a that was an interesting that was an interesting was. experience oh, to say the least. Yeah. But I'm, that, gl- I'm glad it happened. Yeah. That yeah. film uh I just can't I don't Tucson so. actually offered to pay for my ticket. <laughs> When I would go repeat, uh, see it again, which I thought was adorable. But, yeah, uh, gentleman. No. He actually, yeah. he never would have given you the money. But the- yeah, <laughs> what a fuck you. <laughs> no, but no, I, I actually I completely understand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just yeah. being a dick. Yeah. So the next so, category, uh, something that actually had I had an actual kind of difficulty with oh. uh, with this one, which was best use of music. Oh yeah, I got a good answer. Okay, well go ahead then. My answer is American Honey. Uh, that is a movie that is like oozing with music. Uh, it is literally all diegetic. It's always a character. First of all, a lot of that movie takes place in a car on a road trip, so that's such a fundamental part of road tripping is, you know, to have your soundtrack. And it is, music itself is like another character in American Honey. From the very first scene in which uh, Shia LaBeouf and his gang of Mary Magazine salesmen, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta watch the movie, uh, are dancing in a in a supermarket to Rihanna's We Found Love, you know, uh, to um, the main character of Sasha in a Texas kind of honky dog barn dancing, uh, you know, bar. Um, like every single almost frame of that movie uh, ha- is scored by something, and it's usually something that's not like like an actual score. It's you know already pre existing music, and it really does capture how music is such a inseparable part of our identity, of our region, and of our lives. Coming of age, yeah. So I, I absolutely, and it's not even so much that it, it's unlike something like Everybody Wants Some, where I can like name all the songs that were in it because it's so I would say in your face about it. Like this, I can barely name all of them, but I, I remember watching that every single scene that was scored to some song, and not only are they scored to a song, but a lot of scenes just feature the characters of the movie singing along with these songs. Um, uh, they just really struck a chord with me of how we all kind of take music for granted and kind of use it as a crutch to, uh, to I don't know, communicate with each other and also to kind of drown out our sorrows. So I absolutely loved uh, the and it's not a soundtrack I would listen to separate from the movie. So, and I thought that was another important detail that it works only because it works inside the film itself. So, mm-hmm. American Honey, uh, in my opinion, whatever you think of the movie, because I know a lot of people probably won't like it, it's two hours and forty five minutes, but it's got a banging soundtrack. Yeah, I think that I kind of I kind of talked to you guys before we recorded this episode that there was going to be a film on this list. That would that you haven't seen? No, that would be featured prominently in in this half of the episode that would not be present at all in the the first half, and I think that it sort of gets to home, get, gets to the heart of like what my problems with that film are. It's like for for best use of music, I think I'm I'd have to say Swiss Army Man because Ooh. it's a feature it's a fucking feature length music video. Yeah. Like that's the strongest part about it is is how it pairs with the actual visual elements that are on screen. It's like whether it's 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 going totally tongue in cheek or if it's trying to be evocative or more emotive of something. It's like I feel like it it uses its music well, but it just they're so they're it's so thin. I agree. It, it's so thin. And and it, it's 
it, it hurts to say that because it was actually one of my most anticipated films of last year. Just because I wanted something weird and I want something I want something weird, but I want something with some meat on the bone. That's just this just didn't have that. So yeah. at least I can give it that. So for sure. So um, I, I have a feeling that Nick's going to think this is blasphemy. So that's fine. Um, uh, I picked a specific instance. Use of me. What do you think I'm going to say? Oh, okay. A specific. I don't know about specific instance. Uh, no, that would not, was not my selection. All so right, then you. I don't know. Okay, uh, it was a specific instance in a uh, a use of a specific song uh, in a in a film uh, that I liked. That I actually went back to thinking about multiple times, and uh, it actually is involved in uh, one of Nick's answer for something he thought was the worst part of the year, which is great. Um, but um, I remember loving this specific part of this film when I saw it, and there was just something about the way the whole thing worked together that, that made it work for me, and I um, I went back and watched uh, it a couple times. Do you know what I'm going to say? Are you going to say something from Suicide Squad? No. Okay. Uh, I'm going okay. to say the use of uh, the song What a Wonderful World during the uh, – moment when the truck with all of the different fish is falling oh. into the yeah uh, thank you yeah. uh it w- there's just something I about that's fine there's something about that song and seeing the way that the fishes uh, i don't give a shit what you say you know i just I, let I him finish the so, fucking sentence yeah i'm sorry i just there, i didn't think there, this was coming i'm there, just... <laughs> There's something about the way the fish's eyes just light up and hearing that song. And I, I don't care. This fucking guy, what a piece of shit. He expects us to take fucking Neon Demon seriously. And he's laughing at me about this. The humanity in that fish. <laughs> Stop being okay. a dick. Anyway, continue. No, I, I, there's not much to it. It's just it's the the way that the song is there with the images of the happy fish. Okay. Falling back into their home, just somebody just gets at me, and, and I love it. And it can continue to be a piece of shit person, oh, and that's fine. It's beautiful. Yeah, sure. Can I make a quick note about worst use of music? <laughs> Is it that? <laughs> no, it's not that. It's the entire Suicide Squad soundtrack. Uh, and I know. Yeah. I would agree with no, that. No, no, no. I yeah. know that we talked about this. I know that we talked about this on the episode, but I still feel strongly about it in that I feel like the film over relies on licensed mm-hmm. music. I have no problem with licensed music in these larger, like tentpole, like superhero films, but I'm saying that it just doesn't work. Yeah, it just doesn't, and it's not singling out one particular it was, song. It's the it's the entire ensemble of how these songs was, are choreographed together. It, it was completely forced into every oh, yeah. single it's action. Into every, and it's, yeah. and it, first ten minutes are like just headbanging. It, worse, it uh, carries the emotional crux of that entire film, and and to think that I that Eminem's songs like <laughs> two trailer park hoes go round the outside round would carry would carry the emotional crux of anything is just so damning to that film Sorry. what's what's the one thing you want uh out of this after saving the world bet thank you black <laughs> crocodile thank, thank you, you. <laughs> thank you thank you ebonics croc thanks all right moving on 
to the best title sequence of 2016. Go ahead, This Nick. was easy for me, and it okay. was almost my answer to our last question, which is pop star never stop, never stopping. Um, the title sequence is essentially a music video. It's the... Uh, it's, in my opinion, the breakout song besides the Osama bin Laden song from that movie. But Fuck it's bin Laden. Yeah, it's a great song. And um, but it's the uh, basically montage of Connor for real, played by Adam Andy Samberg, uh, singing the song "I'm So Humble." Uh, over a bunch of different clips that are just packed with a lot of different jokes. And it really, in my opinion, does perfectly parody the self-indulgent music biopics that I kind of eat up in general, but I also can totally see, like, how cheesy and schmaltzy they are. Um, So just those lyrics and that... Uh, I mean, there's a there's some a snippet in which they're recording the song you're hearing, like they they flash to a scene where you see Jorma Tacone and um, Andy Samberg's character, like I don't know, nodding their head along with the beat, while and um, what is his name from Maroon Five, um, uh, Adam Levine, yeah. right? Yeah, um, is recording his like spot on the chorus, and just the way they react to it, like oh, like it's the dopest track they've ever heard. It's just pure comedy gold. And I honestly, I'm not joking when I say that, like this song is a microcosm to how I think pop star kind of predicted the Trump election because uh, nobody is more egotastic and bragging about how humble they are and how wonderful they are on such a global scale and the sad thing is is that uh connor for real at least had a redemption arc so uh yeah it was just the most striking uh title sequence for me for sure yeah so best title sequence for me would have to be swiss army man yeah i know it's like just watching him ride daniel radcliffe into the fucking ocean just Pulling at his ass like a fucking jet ski, and then the smash, the 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 fucking smash of the titles, just zooming. I'm so in. mad that they used that in the trailer. Like a fucking, like a fucking National Geographic like <laughs> documentary. I fucking live for that shit. It was yeah. great. It was great seeing it in the theater with no context whatsoever. Yeah. I will say, <laughs> as someone who didn't love that movie, like yeah. that is like the high point of the movie for me and not as an yeah. insult like I like flat out love that moment I, I feel like I'm picking at the at, at, at the the edge of this film for the things that I like yeah. and it feels bad but it's just like these are the best parts of the film yeah yeah well my best title sequence uh, is something that has been used throughout this uh, this film universe's history. But I actually quite enjoyed this one, and, and I feel like a lot of people didn't really love it. Uh, and that was the use of the title sequence during X Men Apocalypse. Oh yeah, which I actually thought was really good, and hey, yeah. a yeah. lot of different uh, symbols, and even got into Nazis. Nazis got into uh, the birth of Christ. I mean, all kinds of things to go from the time apocalypse originally was living until modern well not modern day but until the the 80s of where we landed and uh i just thought it was just so cool and so awesome of how it was done and then obviously ending with the usual x-men uh door was was really wonderful so that was my pretty easy choice not anything to get too involved with it but i just thought it was really well done yeah 
Uh, and actually, I just caught up on this because I'm looking at my list right now. I've been saying 15, but we actually have 16 categories. Jesus Christ, Alex. Because you added one uh, uh, late in the game. Oh, I added one. You did, actually. <laughs> but uh, So I've been saying 15, and we'll stay with it. But we, we just did one better because we're Ooh. awesome. Look at us. <laughs> All right. So, uh, best opening scene of 2016. Uh, mine best opening scene is the most recent movie I've seen uh, as far as most recent 2016 movies and it's Tony Erdman's opening scene. Uh, Tony Erdman itself is a film where you, when you watch the trailer or you hear the premise, you kind of wonder how does this even work? Like how does this hang together as a film? Mm-hmm. And what's great about the opening scene is it answers all those questions and more because it completely disarms you as an audience member uh, to see this man answer the door uh, as a delivery man is bringing a package to him and he goes through the motions of saying oh hold on my my brother is you know back there he's yelling it must be for him hold on and then so he goes away and he comes back as Tony Erdman his fictional character that he uses throughout the whole movie and it was just a laugh riot for me and for the audience I saw it with because he's got this ridiculous fake teeth and whatnot and just the the back and forth between him and this unassuming uh, package carrier was just great because he starts talking about how, oh, yeah, he goes um, – he, he casually mentions that he was arrested for delivering mail bombs. And <laughs> so as the guy is just holding the package and, and he's eating a banana. And it's just so – absurd it's so uh, ludicrous and it absolutely worked so you kind of start to forget about like just how the movie itself will work because it just completely wins you over i wonder how jack nicholson will play that scene in the remake yeah i don't want to think about that (laughs) so no that's absolutely as far as like if, if a film's opening scene is to like win you over and to get you on the side of its premise or on what it's trying to sell uh tony Ehrman absolutely succeeds and it does that uh and then somehow delivers two hours and 40 minutes of it. So uh, absolutely, that was just the most I was kind of uh, on the fence about something until I saw the opening scene, Tony huh. Erdman. All right, Tucson. So my favorite opening scene is Swiss Army Man because seeing wow. Paul Dano try to hang himself only to come across Daniel Radcliffe's how about like... That, how, about, how about that moment, though, when he is reached the very end of hope and mm-hmm. just decides to hang himself? And then sees a person off in the distance yeah. and tries to walk towards him, <laughs> that's forgetting a, that's that a he's body. got a noose <laughs> yeah. around his neck. Yeah, that was that was absolutely <laughs> fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the opening scene, opening tile sequence, and the music—those are the things that I take away from from Swiss Army Man. Yeah, yeah. That boy, that way, that body starts to start farting <laughs> and just jet skiing off into the yeah, ocean. It's boy, that's, that's something right there. Yeah. That I, that's still such a wonderful story from early 2016 about the droves of people that walked out of the first screening of Swiss <laughs> Army Man because they're like, yeah. what the fuck is this? Because <laughs> there were a lot of people who walked into that film, and maybe it's their own fault because not knowing anything about the directors, but walked in there thinking that was going to be a totally serious film, and they were wrong. Yep. Whoa. <laughs> Uh, mine, uh, this was one of the categories It was really easy for me. Uh, the best opening scene was for sure Midnight Special. Uh, that was fantastic. I figured that was going to be your answer. Yep. Just the way it goes about where they are trying to escape using the, uh, 
the night vision in the car with the lights turned off, which I thought was one of the most ingenious things oh I've seen in a God, film. Oh, my God. I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, that's so fucking I just, dope. I just mentioned this like two weeks ago. I was going to say, you said it last week. No, God, but that it's, was so fucking awesome. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Great. And then the smash cut to the title is just... <sighs> Yeah, it was. I agree. It was fabulous, and unfortunately, it's all downhill from there for me. <laughs> but uh, that part of the film, at least, was just phenomenal. So, yeah. way to go! Yeah. All right. All right. All right. Best theater experience. We know Nick's is Utopia, so we can move on to Sod. Was that this year? Shit, it was. Yeah. Oh the, man, fucking the, vapor. I. The old vapor. <laughs> this is a this is a hard one for me. Well, no, I, I think Nick actually has an answer. Oh, you do? Yeah. What is it? <laughs> if I can. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a tie, but they're the same kind of experience. Yeah. So, in general, it's the match between um, Tony Erdman and Love and Friendship because it's not often that I get to go see uh, kind of, I would say, an esoteric comedy, whether it's because it's foreign language or because it's uh, in yield English or whatever, uh, but where I get to see a movie with a theater full of people who are there to watch that movie instead of going to see it at like an AMC where uh, the gray-haired crowd walks in not knowing what to expect and then they just sit there and whatever. So it was extremely exhilarating. Uh, Tony Erdman in particular has a centerpiece scene toward the end of a film in which somebody hosts a party and something happens in that. If you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but it it escalated like a, an episode of Frasier as far as it was just pure farce. And to see people laughing louder each time something would repeat itself was just one of the most delightful ex- movie experiences I've ever had. Uh, so definitely Tony Erdman and Love and Friendship for that unusual, uh, not unusual, but particular crowd side meets genuinely funny comedy. I typically judge a movie-going experience by how hype I feel when I'm in the theater. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. And this isn't actually even like a theater-going experience, but a movie-seeing experience. Okay. And that was watching uh, First Girl I Loved. <laughs> because I don't know what what it was, but I... Man, I was feeling myself that night. You were. were. Yeah. <laughs> man, that was fucking awesome. That was that was something because yeah. that is a film that that I probably that in I, hindsight I should not have reacted to the way that I did, but I that was just the first reaction. Probably no. Yeah, it, it, such a reserved reaction I would assume most people would have kind of like a ooh. But Tucson is just a fucking like Jumping up and down, moving his arms around, man, he was just having a blast, and yeah. it was something yeah. that was great. Yeah, it's almost like Rocky Four all over again, but with this film. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> I nearly died from laughter. <laughs> so, I have a tie. Yeah, uh, here uh, the first film I'll mention is uh, something I just enjoy doing, which was going to see the IMAX 3D presentation of Rogue One with my nephew, uh, which I thought was. Wonderful, and it was fun to see him just enjoying uh, the film and actually enjoying a 3D presentation of a film, which I usually do not do. Uh, and it was Star Wars, so it was just the whole mixed bag of everything. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. And the other theater experience is some I've mentioned multiple times, but it was uh, at Sundance when myself and Nick saw the lore uh, with the two <laughs> stars sitting right in yeah. front of us and the just bizarreness of seeing these two girls basically completely naked for the entire film and they're sitting right in front of us texting and giggling to each other it was just such a surreal experience yeah. and something I'll probably never forget. That <laughs> yeah. honestly probably should have been my answer considering like I don't I 
pretty sure I was going to annoy the hell out of you that day because I just kept talking about the lure. Like yeah. even when we were in line for a different movie yeah. <laughs> earlier that day. But so for the fact that alone that that movie, in my opinion, lit up to the hype. Uh, but then also, yeah, to like after all that talking shit, not shit, but talking it up and like, oh, this is going to be the greatest movie ever. When we sat down behind uh, the two main actresses, that's when I was like, oh. Yeah, and it was oh, dear. <laughs> it was one of those things because Michael Shannon was sitting in the row behind us during uh, Frank and Lola. Oh, and I think the... during the lure. That would have like, really been, That would have been fitting. And... <laughs> what, he clapped like that? No, he's a, he's I a, can see him doing that. But... I, I think he's anyway. legitimately a, a very weird person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> hey Mike that, you got so serious Fan of the show. Yeah. I, I hate to tell you but I, I think he might he might be a crazy person in yeah. real life well we were on a cartwheel <laughs> and, uh, there's a storm oh there is a storm coming and it's me like nothing <laughs> you've ever seen uh, Hurricane anyway. Michael Shannon it's coming in <laughs> you watch you watch. We'll, We've run out of names, so we're using two. We'll uh, live to see that. <laughs> oh, FEMA, where art thou? Oh, oh boy. God. So, uh, but, oh, yeah. That that was that cool was and interesting to have him and just bizarre. But that experience and the content of that film with them sitting in just two, like, 20-year-old girls, maybe, just sitting and giggling and on their phones. And no one gives a shit because it, it it's just, the whole the whole package was just so amazingly bizarre. I want to say one thing before yeah. we get off the conversation of the lure. I'm just putting it on record on a recording somewhere. Uh, we are basically in a situation right now. It is February 9th, maybe February yeah. 8th or 9th. Yeah, 9th. February 9th, yeah. 2017. We are pretty much all but confirmed to get a, the lure uh, criterion edition mm-hmm. on Blu-ray and I'm fucking psyched. But, if they had any bonus feature that was some kind of recording of like that Sundance panel, because you know I knew they did a Q and A or whatever, because they do that sort of thing. Yeah. Like I will fucking lose my shit. So I just want to put that out in the world. Hopefully that'll make it happen. Yeah. Not literally, but anyway, um, I will not probably even show up to Film Tank after I discover that because I will just be so happy. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, that's one of the very few films that's kind of gotten to the point now where if that comes out on Blu-ray on Criterion, I will probably buy that day one. Just because I, I still, even though I don't love it, I, I thoroughly enjoy that film. So many aspects of it are, are quite good, and so many I just kind of are, don't really love or care for. But uh, the whole experience surrounding that, and then just how it ended up, like... That's the crazy thing about going to a film festival like that. Like, odds are you will not be sitting right behind the stars of, but as fate should have it, here you are. And it just so happens to be that fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were in that situation for a film like, if you were sitting behind um, Elizabeth it's... Moss for The Free World, you'd be like, oh, this is cool, but you sucked no, in the movie. I would have been freaking out just because I, I know you would have been. If it was something more like Spa Night, like yeah. where it was much more mundane of like, Yeah, oh. I, I guess that's probably a better example. But still, for but this, yeah. it just all just it rolled together. And it, was, sure? it was great. So, uh, three left. 
And this one is <laughs> the biggest WTF moment of the year in I cinema. I think I'll echo somebody who I think we might have the same. Okay. But I uh, wrote down the gobble, gobble, gobble moment from Don't Breathe. Okay. Which is the turkey baster. Okay. Because uh, that is a movie that I think I like most out of all three of us. You just wanted a child. Um, I really... Is he Bane? You just wanted a child. <laughs> um, That's such a beautiful voice. Oh, <laughs> boy. What? That was good. That was good. Yeah. Really? It just meant like that was like terrifying. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, Thank you. And he's done. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. And that moment is like, I think still in tune with the film but yeah. certainly at the most outer rim of of the orbit that that movie is traveling <laughs> I thought in. you were going to say they shot money yeah maybe yeah. but no that wasn't what the well, fuck. I mean, that was just silly uh, but the the actual shot, they shot money yeah. how could what they the shoot fuck? money if they would have put the money somewhere. yeah they missed it they it's missed like that opportunity loved. They, they're typing it and it's just showing up on the screen anyway um, but no the actual visceral image because they're it's, they're showing it to you. It's not like they're hinting at it. They show you her taking a turkey baster full of his sperm and shoving it in his and mouth. And squeezing. And squeezing, yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in a way to somehow, not somehow, but pierce his throat. Uh, yeah, that I will admit, when I sat down to watch that movie, no matter how hyped I was for it, I never thought I was going to see that. And personally, I'm glad that it's in there. <laughs> Um, but it certainly, it's a signature moment that it was certainly something That's that I sure. was looking at both of you when we were watching, like, Oh, did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I did. yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's a lot of things with mouth getting hit with cum because man, <laughs> we were talking last year about the Samuel Jackson scene <laughs> and it was full of blood. Oh God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Boy. I mean, I don't bring up. Talking about last year again, but yeah. man, still that Samuel Jackson. Scene, starting to see pictures, aren't you? Only because uh, in that particular film, definitely different from this, it is such a it, not it's battery thing, but it is going at such a similar pace throughout the entire beginning of that film, and then you hit that point, and you're like, oh, oh, things escalate quickly. <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. Tucson. Uh, yeah, the biggest what-the-fuck moment was uh, the ending to Sausage Party. For a film <laughs> that is made entirely of crass moments, um, yeah, yeah that, oh, to boy. see... Just forgot a, about that. Just an entire... I mean, the movie's called Sausage Party. I know, yeah, but like, I didn't imagine all the, the food to fuck at the end. <laughs> It's like a, it's like a, it's like a. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, oh yeah, that's right. It's like I a, did fuck. It, yeah, it's like you? a, it's like yes. a food fight. Only it's a food <laughs> yeah. fuck because they're all fucking. Isn't right? there like an anal rape part of that? Almost? Yeah, there's, there's a, a lot of things. There's, there's a lot of uh, simulated penetration between a hot dog. I don't think someone a, was simulated. Man, a, I hate to break a, it to you, and a bun wow. and a tortilla shell. I, just, I, 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 a, I don't know what to do. I put the spread over it. It doesn't make any sense. I don't want to say I'm a nervous wreck, but <laughs> it's Edward Norton too. That's, uh, this fucking guy. That's really that's really fucking, damn it. That's fucking me up. Right I, I I I was in one Woody Allen movie and now I'm casted in this shit. I don't get it. Yeah, and then he fucking put himself in that goddamn Will Smith movie <laughs> later in the year. We we, we got to save our colleague. <laughs> it's, it's collateral beauty, am I right? 
Anyway, here's Death Personified. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, back I'm, to Bagel's fucking. I'm dying. Oh, my God. That fucking guy. I'm done. That I, guy, I can't remember, follow that. Just remember, that guy played Derek Vineyard in American History X. <laughs> Like, that guy is done... I, 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 I have a reformed mental state. I mean, I used to think that the, the, the black population shouldn't exist, but then, then I was raped in prison, and I, I, now I, I have completely different thoughts. I, my brother, save him. Yeah, and he's still, still got that fucking huge swastika tattoo. Oh that God, sucks. Stop. Remember the time I curb-stomped somebody? <laughs> Why is this flashback in black and white? Or the time when you realize, or the time when you realize that you just blew up eight large buildings. <laughs> you, I'm sorry, you, you met me at a bad, weird time in my life. Uh, anyway, here's Peru the Balk. <laughs> Isn't she an American? Yes. Person? Okay. His girlfriend, who has yeah. the fucking Nazi haircut, who tells him that they're organized <laughs> when he comes back. Guess who's coming to dinner? Elliot Gould. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Oh boy, that's wow. that's quite a line when he uh, delivers that to uh, the mom from vacation when he tells her to run to her. Yeah, that was. Do you think I should do all of our future episodes as Sammy Bagel Jr.? <laughs> I no, I think I think that that was one of the greatest moments. That was pretty good that we have ever I mean, had. That was pretty great on this podcast. That was way better than anything in that movie. So that, that, was, re- that really was not to toot my own horn. And it was, it was all off the cuff. I'm, I'm very Sammy impressed. Bagel Jr. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I will admit I like that name. <laughs> Anyway, just put Woody Allen every single fucking role he's ever done. Yeah. So I'm guessing that was all you had to say, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add to that? No. (laughs) Uh, My choice is uh, Abby Lee spitting out the eyeball in the Neon Demon. Oh, man. Yeah. I almost chose that, but at the end. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I guess because I was on the movie's <laughs> wavelength, it wasn't as weird because I was already yeah. expecting that. But I totally understand. I mean, it, just the visual yeah. aspect of it, of just the whole, For any sure. of that movie. And I obviously was already on a much different wavelength <laughs> than you uh, during it. But then just the kind of end of that where I was just like, of course, why not? <laughs> Let's just go all the way. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that perfectly personified my feelings on that movie. And that was just like. All right, roll credits. Yeah. Time to go home. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, uh, both of these last categories have have multiples within them, so we'll we'll do them both at the same time. Uh, this first one involves the breakout star of the year, both male and female. So, Nick, why don't you go first? Yeah, I had a uh, a tie. Shocking. Kind of. Okay, so female is uh, Elle Fanning. I know you guys didn't care for the Neon Demon, but I thought watching her in that and in a movie that I didn't actually care for, 20th Century Women, like I am actually fascinated by what she will do next. I think 
whether you hate those movies, because I didn't really care for the, the, the latter, uh, like, I don't think there's really any denying that she has a presence, so to speak. Yeah, she put on a decent performance in the uh, the Ben Affleck gangster film that most people panned uh, called Live by Night. Was she in that? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. see, there we go. And yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think she's great, uh, but I, I still think that there's definitely a chance that she could have a, a career in front of her. So. Yeah, and that's what I mean as far as, like, breakout and untapped potential. Like, yeah. I think she's the person to look at, so to speak, uh, for where to go from here. Uh, then I have a tie for male, um, which is uh, Alden Ehrenreich. Yeah. I think uh, that one scene alone pretty much earns him the title. But really, his whole, because when I rewatched it, I was struck by how earnest he is throughout the whole movie and how wonderfully he um, in, embodies that character of Toby. Um, I love the idea of him uh, talking with uh, Josh Brolin. Uh, it's such a throwaway scene, but him being like, well, usually I just you know, deliver the two lines and then I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> that and one of my favorite scenes that we haven't even talked about is but is in Hail Caesar where he has that like date with the person he's supposed to accompany, the starlet that the studio has chosen for him. Mm-hmm. But it's actually this weirdly sweet scene where because he has no hidden agenda or he's not there to actually further his career, he's just a yes man, um, he ends up being just only himself, and because of that, he's kind of endearing. So, uh, I would say Alden Ehrenreich, and obviously, now that he's going to be Han Solo, he certainly <laughs> did break out. Yeah. The other person I'll mention as somebody to look out for is um, Julian Dennison, who is plays the kid Ricky Baker in the movie Hunt for the Wilder People. Like, that's not a movie I would say I absolutely love, but I really, really liked. And part of that is because it hangs on that 13-year-old, however old he is, uh, is back. Like, he is actually a really gifted comic performer. He somehow was able, and, you know, the guy who directed that is now going to direct Thor 3. And um, so I I think he's got an eye for talent, and he definitely had it in that child actor of Julian because when you can play opposite of Sam Neill and be the perfect counterbalance to his stoicness and um, deliver lines without really flapping of just utter absurdity like when he argues with a cop about which one of them in that situation is the Sarah Connor from the Terminator (laughs) Um, it's just wonderfully delivered and I actually think that that was just a beautiful casting choice and I hope that it's not just a case of like a child actor being good because they're a child and I hope it actually goes somewhere so yeah that's my pick all right okay so my pick for best uh, breakout actress is Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch as Thomason, and also from, get this, from Split as Casey Cook, even though, like, that second one is a little suspect. Yeah. I think that... I got you. No. I, yeah. it's, it's I, fine. I, I think that she's a rising talent. That, and it, and that she's in that role as mm-hmm. a starring role in an M. Night Shyamalan, which is now, for, I mean... It, for part, two leading, like, horror films in their own well, right. Like, but you, you see is a film that got buzz at the Sundance Film Festival mm-hmm. in 2015. Now the film that, even though in a shit time of year, is the M. Night Shyamalan return film. Like, that's right. just, this is officially that. To be... Winning, even in a shit time of year, the box office three weeks in a row, and a lot of people praising it and talking about it uh, throughout uh, the film community. I mean, she's been yeah. in some shit, too. She's been in Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible film, Morgan. But, you know, like... Did you I'm, see that, by the way? I heard it was shit. 
I I remember you saying you were interested, and then I heard it was not. Yeah. But I know I remember, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing where she she goes from here. For um breakout actor, um uh, I picked uh Black Phillip from The Witch because <laughs> holy fucking shit, I love that goat He's, so much. I agree. I love that goat so much, and I can't wait to see more of him. I think he's. I thought I heard that he's going to play the Babadook in a Babadook remake oh my God. for an English language audience. You know what? Because I, they can't understand Australian accents. Well, I'd, I'd actually totally be okay with that if they have to remake it. So put the fucking goat in a top hat. Babadook. Oh, that was that was actually quite funny. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's one. Yeah. You don't know what you want from me. Yeah. Uh, so my uh, male breakout star is someone I've mentioned that's obviously previously been in films, but this is the first time uh, that he really uh, felt like uh, became something, and that was Andrew Garfield, uh, his roles in Silence, and then also in Hex- Hexaw Ridge. So uh, he's had a career, obviously, but I feel like uh, now he might actually get some starring roles in films where previously it was a, it was a challenge for him to, to really break into uh Big time Hollywood. So, yeah, that's my choice for male breakout star. And for female breakout star, I chose Anya Taylor Joy from The Witch. And also, my man. Also, I also put down Split as well. I Uh, almost chose her as well. Yeah, well, there you go. Well, I mean, she's pretty much an obvious choice, I feel like, because uh, her performance in The Witch was was really strong. And, uh, I feel like in Split, she showed that that wasn't just a caught lightning in a bottle or, or anything. Like, I thought she put on a really strong uh, sophomore performance in uh, Split. So I'm, I'm excited to see where she ends up going from here. Not to mention, I can honestly see a situation in which you showed somebody both those films and they didn't realize it was the same person. Yeah, like I, absolutely. It, and I know part of that's due to the fact that she dyes her hair, but yeah. it also has to do with performance. And I think that's a great test of like whether someone has the last... Kind of like Oscar Isaac almost, um, where he barely changes his hair and appearance and yet he's able to, in a much, I think, more... Well, except for Apocalypse, you know. Remember I couldn't tell it was him. <laughs> I thought it was a real blue man. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> All right, we have reached the last category, uh, which is uh, the positive and negative. Okay, uh, so I only chose one. Okay. I thought we were choosing either or, but I can choose two. Okay. Anyways, it's just the film <laughs> that people were wrong about, that people loved and we thought was shit. And then also people, a, a film that people hated that we thought was good. So there you go. So go ahead, Nick. Uh, my answer is very obvious. It's La La Land. I think it's an insult <laughs> to cinema. And I, it, it mostly irks me for the fact that I think La La Land is a successful film if somebody doesn't know anything about film. And I I know that sounds insulting, but I say that because of the fact that... Break that apart. Unpack that. Because La La Land itself, as an entity, begs to be considered in the context of cinema history. And if you are opening those doors, I will slam them the fuck back on your face because you cannot... It it just never justified uh, any of that, I thought... As a musical, it failed, and that's primarily what it is, so that's a bad thing. Um, But even outside of that, I never once got a feeling of uh, any kind of 
sense of wonder or awe. And frankly, I, I just... The thing that most kind of insulted me is I love musicals. And whether I think, okay, put aside the whole relationship with Cinema Pass, whatever, whether I think that's there or not, the thing I most am discouraged by watching La La Land is I think it is a completely cowardly take on trying to deliver a musical in this day and age. Because I think it is working overtime to make what seems to, I think, Damien Chazelle as outdated modes of exposition or of uh, mise-en-scene, and he doesn't have enough faith in what is actually the beating heart of a genre he is pretending to love, and it just made me sad. So that is my uh, negative side of it. Okay. Are you going to your positive? I will say my positive, even though I have nothing to say about it, but... Even though I think actually a lot of critics did like it, uh, I have to say the Neon Demon. I think everything that can be it can be criticized against it is also the point. So that's it's cheap. one of the most divisive films. Yeah, of the year. and that's cheap uh, defense. I'll, I'll admit that. I'll cop to that. But yeah. um, for the exact reason that people hate it is why I think it works. Because I'm like, oh, if you're getting upset about it, then clearly its satire is actually kind of biting. So uh, I think it's absurd. It's silly, and it's completely purposeful. Yeah. But those are my answers. Um, I would have to say for at least my negative reaction for for a film, it'd have to be La La Land. My, now, my reaction is not as vitriolic as as Nick's is. And I think La La Land uh, propagates white supremacy. In uh... <laughs> that's a hot take. That that that's a hot. That's no, a, that's a piping hot take, my friend. Before you even say what you're gonna, I will say. Uh, as one of the controversies that surround this movie, I could not give a fuck about Ryan Gosling saving Chad. Like that is so yeah. beside the conversation of yeah. what this movie is actually about. Yeah, you know. I uh, <laughs> I feel like about I feel about this film that it's it's a it's a good film. I think that it's a competent film. I think that it it I I, I can see why people enjoy this film. I can see what people can get out of this film because I think that there are genuinely some scenes that are sort of beautiful. It's just for me, it feels so. To compare it to like Hail Caesar in the way that it deals with artificiality of the whole sort of like mythos of Hollywood, I feel like La La Land is missing a crucial sort of self consciousness or a self awareness about sort of the 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 simulacra of of Hollywood that it that it projects out of its scenery out of its mise-en-scene out of its out of its color out of, out of its 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 um dance choreography all of that even its themes and even its dialogue and i'm just and, and, and it frustrates me because i know look i i just i just don't i I'm, I'm just not on the same level as everybody else who is just like over the moon about this film and i can totally see why it's just like for me it just it's missing that central component where i feel like it could be something more than just like this, this, this film that that's meant to 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 just like slob all over like Hollywood. Also, I'll say this, and this comes from someone who absolutely loved the movie, yeah. so it's it's a totally different yeah, aspect. Yeah, uh, and and I've already said pretty much my feelings on right. it. I'll stand behind them. Yeah, but for both of your guys' perspective, where you feel like this is the the film everybody's wrong about, and I, I do know that. Even though I wouldn't you, say wrong, I just feel like well, it's over, it, I feel like it's overblown. That, that's know? fine, yeah. yeah wrong. But definitely a film that I feel like both of you guys were were, were disappointed with, yeah, for, for sure. 
Um, it's because both of you and everybody, because mm-hmm. we did a full, very interesting episode about it. Now, mind you, you, we love the fuck out of Whiplash. And that's where I was going with this, so thank you. Uh, you guys have both seen Damien Chazelle do very excellent work that you both agreed yeah. was really good. And then yeah. you see him do this, where yeah. you both thought the similar thing, where you were kind of disappointed with, with how it went. So. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, as a final statement on La La Land, it's constant put down of contemporary culture where it has such a contempt for it strikes me as that friend you have in the group that has such a positive exterior that you don't realize should actually go to therapy because it's so full of self-loathing that Mm. it will kill itself when you're not looking yeah yeah anyway um who's next well, Tuzan didn't give his positive yet. So. Positive? I actually don't have a positive. Wow. There's there no positive thing about 2016. Let's just no. be honest. No, all the all the films that I enjoyed like turned out to like be ones that had some sort of like critical consensus about it. Not because I'm just hewing to that, but just like, oh, it's like there's nothing like anything that like is like ultimately insulting. It's like all the films I want to, I'm willing to go to bat for. Is like seems yeah. like. Pretty sizable amount of people like them too, so I'm just like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, on the negative spectrum, uh, I felt like most people seem to enjoy Ten Cloverfield Lane, and I mm. thought it was not good at all. I thought you were going to say the nice guys. Uh, yeah, that was definitely in consideration because, but I felt like that definitely had, uh, in terms of people that I know who saw it, didn't get a lot of overwhelming praise yeah. for it from non-critics. Man, we were not on that film's wavelength when, no. we, when we first saw it. And again, I'm going to give another chance at some point because right. I saw yeah. a, a bit of it again and thought I actually liked it a little more. Right. But for just the piece I saw, mm-hmm. so that's yeah. not a very good not a very good continuation after yeah. the first viewing. But Tank Cloverfield Lane, I was bored through a lot of it and I was waiting for that moment at the end that was going to tie it all together. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it went the other way. And uh, it seemed as though pretty much everybody I know that has either seen it or every critic I've read about this film either just kind of enjoyed it or thought it was fantastic. And I just couldn't disagree more because even getting away from uh, the, the Cloverfield and sequel thing, which is, you know, now over a year old. So it's, gone and forgotten for the most part for me just as a standalone film i thought this really did nothing for me in terms of uh a a full-length film and um i just have to disagree with pretty much everybody and on the positive side of things uh i thought most people were wrong about jason Bourne because i thought it was a really strong action film um it did not get as deep into some of the things that the earlier Jason Bourne things did or uh, as intricate as some of the other spy thriller uh, films of previous uh, years have. And certainly this wasn't as good as something like the previous Mission Impossible films like Rogue Nation, which was fantastic from last year. Uh, but I thought Jason Bourne was a, was a really solid film. Uh, with actually pretty good performances, other than Tommy Lee Jones, who had no business being there. But uh, Matt Damon, reprising his role, being back. Uh, Elizabeth Kander, who I thought was pretty solid here. 
uh, a lot of things that I, that I liked a lot from Jason Bourne, including that amazing last scene. So, um, yeah, I, I thought it was strong. And also Vince Cassell, who I always think is great, no matter what he's doing, even if it's not good. Mm-hmm. I, I thought he was good here, and I enjoyed seeing him. So, yeah, it's too bad that a lot of people didn't like this, but I enjoyed it, so yeah. I'm going to keep on enjoying it. So, 2016 was a... Whoa. Was a year. Look at that. It happened. Yep. We elected a new president. Yep. Some people did. Uh, <laughs> Most people didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Those, are, those are legal voters. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to 2017. I have to say, um, from the two films I've seen from this year, and, and the two films we're going to talk about in our next two episodes, um, I feel like... 2017 is going to be off to a better start than yeah. 2016 was. I know. Yeah, I've never so, been this excited about movies in the first quadrant of a year. Right. In the, in the first two months, at least. Yeah. Now, again, it, it's hard to say that because myself and Nick's kind of view of 2016 was totally skewed from going to Sundance last yeah. year, where you just got 19 films in the first month. So mm-hmm. there you go. Uh, but I've seen Split and Live By Night, which. Uh, I like Split more, but I thought Live By Night was was a passable gangster film. Uh, but on the next two episodes, coming up on 102, we're going to be talking uh, about a new film and a film that it is continuing on, the, uh, the universe for. And that is talking about the first John Wick and also the new film, John Wick Chapter 2. Yeah. We're going to have a fucking dance party to that song. Yeah, we are. Yeah. I think we're all excited for Let's it. Kill some puppies. Yeah, John Wick uh, was caught so many people off guard, um, mostly because I feel like we've seen so many of these Keanu Reeves action films yeah. that you just would just pay no mind to it. And this just came out of left field and was such a fantastic, weird collection of of different things, and it just. It just worked for some reason, and um, it seems as though from early reviews that um, the second one is just uh, continuing on with that, so we'll see. So whether you liked the first one or hated the first one, it's more of the same. There are not that many people out there who did not at least enjoy You know who didn't like John Wick? Who's that? People that John Wick headshotted. Yeah. I, I don't know. It was, I mean, they don't really have much of an opinion anymore because, you know, they're dead. It included a fucking whiny little Russian kid. Ramsey Bolton. Yeah. In, no. Uh, in, in, Who is he? No. No, not Ramsey Bolton. You're thinking, God damn it. Theon Greyjoy. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. In a hot, Game of Thrones. In a hot tub, literally yelling to a waitress to bring him back his bottle. It was awesome. <laughs> it's, I'm yeah. I'm kind of pissed that... For all the positive reviews I've read about the second movie, not a single one of them has confirmed the reappearance of Icelandic spa music. And if that's not a misequal, I'm not saying I'm not going to like John Wick 2, but if there's not even a hint of the same kind of magic that happens in that club scene with that soundtrack, I'm going to be a little disappointed. Like, that's as much a... I mean, who basically doesn't like the club scene more than all the other scenes? I mean, scenes? come on. Yeah, that's and fantastic. part of that's because of that soundtrack, in yeah. my opinion. So, so yeah. another part of it, and something we'll probably definitely hit on at some point, uh, is something that obviously there isn't a, a real connection at all between them. But uh, it's hard to not see uh, 
Keanu Reeves and um, this has been a terrible thing on these episodes. Morpheus from The Matrix, Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne, Fishburne uh, together on screen again. Yeah, I'm thinking they're back. <laughs> Obviously, it was free pizza. Yeah, it's a much uh, it's a much different uh, film and a much different universe uh, and different playing different characters and no connection at all. But still. The same people back in a film where they were pretty much tied together uh, early on through through their careers in the, in the late '90s, early 2000s. So we'll see. I think the at this rate, the third movie is going to open up with a scene where he goes to the pet shelter and they're showing him all the dogs, and he goes, "What do I look like? A fucking pussy?" And then he adopts a cat. <laughs> And then he brings the cat home, and like the robbers come, and they try to shoot the cat, but the cat's so agile that they he's can't got nine actually... lives. Yeah, they can't murder the cat. And then he's like, "Ha fuck you, motherfuckers!" Oh man! You are and kidding. then he doesn't kill anybody because his cat's still alive. Way too deep into this, Nick. So no, thank no, you, that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> uh, and then they're gonna fight Mel Gibson, like in the Machete sequel, John Wick Three, soft little kitty. Following that on episode 103, uh, we're going to talk about another new film this week. And this is surprising that uh, even though that John Wick isn't necessarily going to probably be a big box office hit, maybe it will be. Um, Better be. surprising that at this time of year when there's not a lot out there, uh, that these two movies are coming out the same weekend. Yeah. Uh, the Lego Batman movie, which I think has, looks really, really hilarious. Uh, and we'll see if it ends I'm up excited. being good. But uh, I think it'll at least be entertaining, and um, yeah. For it's the most I've looked forward to a <laughs> Batman movie in quite some time. It's got to be more than that Ben Affleck thing, so there you go. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a couple of good episodes and a couple of films that I think you know people, and I know the three of us, are at least looking forward to in uh, February of a of a year in cinema so that's uh that's pretty awesome if you have any thoughts on our 2016 episodes or on the upcoming films we're going to be talking about always feel free to send them along to us at filmtankshow at gmail.com you can also find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com you can also find them on itunes or stitcher as well at film tank show and you can also find us occasionally on facebook twitter and instagram as well at film tank show so, from Nick Cheney to Sean Egan, myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much for listening to us and catching up with us for uh, 2016. We will catch up with you on the other side. Thanks,